Sziasztok, Janó vagyok. Közép-Európa első világra szóló podcast csatornáját hallgatjátok Magyarországról. Ez a Budapest.fm. Hi, my name is Ray, and you're listening to the number one podcast station in Central Europe. Budapest.fm, podcasting to the world from Hungary. Sziasztok mindenkinek! Welcome back to Budapest for episode number five of Talking with Willie. I am joined once more by the one, the only, Bob Tamás. Tommy Bean, how you doing? Very good. Sziasztok, everybody. As always, happy to be here. Best way to wrap up the Friday, as I've said, and I'll stick with it. Cheers to Talking with Willie. Egeségetekra. We actually have here what we're cheersing with as a follow-up from the uh, bourbon-laced episode of last week with Mr. Barlang Janos. We have a Gemmentz Hungarian grain whiskey, and there's a nice little wild boar on the bottle, single barrel. I think this is like the only Hungarian whiskey they even produce. Where did you get this, Tom? I got this from a wine store on Sondi Utsa near the Kodai Karont, and uh, the name is leaving me i can't remember names while i'm on this podcast it's impossible but yeah it's my favorite wine store just down the street from my house and as i was checking out there were four of these bottles on the on the stand you know at the cashier and i was like eh, I'll, i'll take one and then they were like okay which one because these each number means it's a little bit different but they couldn't really tell me why so on the neck you see this is the 2108 There was another one that was like five zeros and an X, and then another one, which is, I don't know, 100. And so I said, well, okay, give me one of each, please. <laughs> and we're trying this one. I don't know how it's different, but yeah, Gemmentz whiskey. Well, I got to say, 2108 is a wonderful little bottle, 48% alcohol, single barrel. And as we remember from last week, when you smell the whiskey, open your mouth, give it a nice deep breath in. Notes of vanilla, a little bit of brown sugar, a little bit of caramel positively delicious and to stay on the drinking theme uh i just got back from tokai do you know about tokai tom i do know about tokai i guess what i usually tell people is that tokai is basically where hungary gets its international fame in wine that's what people know hungry for the tokai dessert wines it's famous one wins global awards all the time but we know that Hungary is more than just Tokai, but yeah, I'm curious, how was the trip to Tokai? The trip to Tokai was fantastic, and you're exactly right. Hungary, actually, going back through the history, was a world-famous wine region. I'm talking back in the days of the Renaissance, 16th century, 17th century, and the reason for that was the famous Tokai dessert wine. Actually, Tokai as a name is sort of a stand-in for sweet dessert wine, uh, traditionally, and It's a fantastic, fantastic place to visit. As you've mentioned, there are many Hungarian wine regions, something that I didn't know before I moved here, but there's plenty. You have Sexard, you have Eger. I think there's like 13 or 14. In the, in the big market hall in Budapest by the Chambers, there's a there's a, like a little memorial. To, I think, there, yeah, there's 14, right? 14, something like that. Yeah. But Tokai the- is, is definitely the creme de la creme, uh, the king of the wine regions. Interestingly, though, they only have white wine in Tokai, not out of like, I mean, it is out of a choice because the white grapes grow better there, but they have to grow white grapes. For commercial use, if you're a vineyard in Tokai, you're not allowed to grow red wine, mm-hmm. believe it or not kind of crazy and so the tokai the tokai dessert wine is it restricted to certain types of wine uh, grape varieties well you have a few different uh, major grape varieties the one that i have here is a formint and that's a white grape uh 
you traditionally see this either sweet, either dry, but with a dessert wine, it's obviously sweet. Um, and then you have a few different types of white grapes that are used in the dessert wine in Tokai. You have harsh levelu, a word that I always find to be just wonderful word. <laughs> Delightful to tickle off the tongue. Harsh levelu. Harsh levelu. And then you have mushkatai, sharga mushkatai specifically, which is like yellow mushkatai. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the three big, big hitters. You have mm-hmm. a little, you know, grape varieties of every sort. There's plenty of little micro grapes, this, that. But definitely the big ones are Furmint, Harsh Levelu, and Mushkatai. And so Tokai as a region is just absolutely beautiful. It's up in the northwest of Hungary. And it's one of the most diverse in terms of geography. You have, oh, I wouldn't call them mountains, but you have definitely like significant foothills and a lot of beautiful uh, valleys and water features. Actually, we went somewhere on a hike just two days ago called the Tengersem. Tenger meaning sea, Sem meaning I, and it's like the sea I because it's in between. It's an old rock quarry, I think they used to mine, and now it just is this beautiful uh, little oasis in the middle of uh, Hungary. Mm-hmm. I like to say it's the biggest sea in all of Hungary, <clears throat> as we know. They don't really have a sea, so they got the Tenger oh, Sem. <laughs> there you go. Take that little sealess Hungary. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's slightly landlocked, although we do have the Balaton. And that is sort of like the Hungarian Mediterranean in a way. Yeah, the biggest freshwater lake in Central Europe, if I'm not mistaken. But this was actually my second trip to Tokai. And I went last year and was absolutely blown away. I mean, it was May. It was warm. The flowers were blooming. Everything was just melodic, poetic. This time it was awesome. Loved it. But if I'm going to choose like end of March versus middle of May, save it for middle of May because Wow. That we was... all know Willie loves a good spring awakening. <laughs> this is sort of Willie's thing, spring awakening. So where were you staying? Were you staying in some kind of cave, some up on the mountains? Well, what's this Tokai <laughs> life look like? I was not staying in a cave. We went to, uh, not this time at least, we went to like this little guest house. I don't know. I'm not going to name names. I don't know if it was technically legally open, but it was great. And one of the places that we went to was the Takac Pinsa. And it's a, it's a Pinsa which is in Hungarian, like a wine cavern, um, basically what it sounds like, a cave where they keep wine. And this one is right below a church, and it's in like an idyllic little location. And the two proprietors, Adri and Janos, they are friends of Alexa's mother's neighbor. And so we go and they ply us with all sorts of white, delicious dessert wines. Adri's mm-hmm. mother, uh, she brought down a absolutely astonishing plate of rantot disno and rantot chirke which is just fried chicken and fried What's pork pork disno uh, is pork and mashed potatoes that i've never had mashed potatoes this creamy in my entire life they were absolutely oh to die for Ooh. give me some of these mashed potatoes but i brought uh from the takach pinza a bottle of their tokai furmint Ketezer Tizen Hate, 2017, which I was told by Janos last night. I asked him, what's the best vintage? So if any collectors are in the audience, what's the best vintage of the past 10 years? And he said, without a shadow of a doubt, 2017. And this Tokai Furmint, it's not an Asu, which is like the famous Hungarian mm-hmm. uh, signature dessert wine. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that's super, super, super sweet. You can only have it in a tiny little glass. This is a Tokai Furmint Keshui, which is a late harvest wine. Mm-hmm. So it's harvested instead of the traditional harvest time, November, December, 
uh, October. This one's harvested, I think, in January, and it just adds a little bit of like sugar to the grapes. So if you want, well, it just can... lets. I think it lets more of the sugar develop into the, in the grapes before they harvest it. So there you go. Thank you, Tom. The, the, we can pop it open and just have a little yeah, a little let's, tipple. Let's, let's pop it open. Yeah, yeah. yeah, let's, yeah, have, yeah. let's have a taste. And while I while I do so, that, um, how was your day? Tell me about your day today, Tom. Ooh, wow, my day was great. I've been trying to. Uh, be a little bit more intentional with my days, you know? Don't, I, I, sometimes I tend to wake up and just watch YouTube for a little while, and that just puts me in this little upset mood. So <laughs> woke up this morning, just put my shoes on and went for a little run, listened to, you know, my audio book as I'm going, and then, yeah, I got home, did a little stretching, and then popped right into work. And uh, I've been listening to this podcast during work called Flow State. Shout out to uh, Bobby Light. I don't know if that's your real name, but it's like the best podcast host name ever. <laughs> uh, he has this podcast where he just plays 30 minutes of kind of like smooth technical techno music to help you work and to get you into the flow state, which is a uh, kind of like a state of focus that was actually coined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a Hungarian philosopher. And it's this concept that when it's it's when you're when the challenge of a task is up to your ability in the task and you get so caught up in the work that you're doing because you're performing at such a high level but you're also uh challenged to a to a very like intense degree and you fall into this kind of like he calls it the flow state and it's when time just goes by you can't even you don't even realize and you're just working and you so he, he coined that term, like yeah, this Hungarian dude, Mihai St. Mihai Csikszent Mihai. Mihai Csikszent Mihai. Uh, he claimed, I mean, he coined the term flow state. So that's something that we, we use a lot in like everyday parlance, I would say. I've, I've heard many people say, oh, I'm in a state of flow. I'm in a flow state. And he was the one that uh, coined that. It's pretty I, cool. Yeah, I, I'm pretty darn sure I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was. That's yeah. all right. Uh, so, so you listen to this podcast by this dude michael light yeah uh johnny bobby light bobby light so bobby it's 30 light. minutes of this kind of music that like helps you drop into this flow state and then for five minutes so it's, and does it it's, work does it work so it's it's related to this thing called the pomodoro technique it goes around in the software world a lot which is the pomodoro technique is you have this little timer it's set for 30 minutes and then for five minutes and then it repeats so you work for 30 minutes and then you take a five minute break and then you work for 30 minutes and this keeps you no matter what, no matter what's going on for 30 minutes, you take a break. And this is how you, cause flow state, this is what he, Bobby also talks about in the five minute breaks, like kind of talks about the flow state and teaches you about the philosophy behind it. And the point is that being in the flow state is actually like really, really tiring and it's uh -huh. really hard on your body. So you have to take little breaks and get out of this. So, you know, you, you do this all the time when you're working, you are just kind of like stuck and working you're just in your keyboard and you don't realize an hour goes by. Um, well, but, that's, that's probably giving my process a little bit more credit than it deserves, but no, that's true. That's true. You get into a state. I think I find this as an equivalent to you. Programming is probably when I'm like editing videos mm -hmm. is probably the most focused I, I get. And it's true. You get into a point where you like all of a sudden you look up and you've been doing it for an hour and it is draining. It is exhausting. I was actually experiencing a little bit of burnout, um, for the first time. Cause I, I made an episode of walking with Willie for the past two months Every Tuesday I would film and every Wednesday I would spend the whole day editing and every Thursday I would post and I posted eight Thursdays in a row. Yesterday was my first break because we were in Tokai, 
but definitely I, I noticed that there was these swaths of time, specifically on Wednesday when I was sitting at the keyboard, sitting at the computer editing. And yeah, it, it felt good, but the exchange of it feeling good and feeling like you're in a state of flow is that it does drain a lot from you. So, so what you're telling me is that this Pomodoro technique is a way to, to stay more consistent in the flow state because you can take little breaks in between. Uh, I think the Pomodoro technique is actually completely separate from flow. It's just the concept of keeping your focus, but he does relate it to flow state and that it's important to take breaks. And that the thing is that when you're in flow, you can stay in it for a really long time if you're really deep. And, but yeah, when you fall out, it's pretty hard to come back if you've been in it for so long because you're really tired and you, by the time you leave, you just feel exhausted. So have you reached uh, the flow state while you're programming? Does that happen to you often? Oh yeah, for sure. That's, that's like, I mean, sometimes it doesn't happen and that's like kind of sad. And if you go through a day and don't have, you know, 30, 40, some people call just call it deep work. Mm -hmm. This is also common term. Um, but yeah, deep work is so satisfying. It's, it's crazy. It's just like meditation and it's crazy. It feels so good to just be lost in your work. Nice. And what I really like about flow is it's described in a graph, right? So one of the axes is the challenge of the task. And one of the axes is your ability in the task. And flow state can only happen at the peak of both of those. So when it's very challenging, but you're also very good at it. And so, and the, yeah. So for instance, something that's like super simple, I don't know, spreading peanut butter and jelly on a sandwich. Exactly. You can be the best peanut butter and jelly spreader in the entire world, but you're not going to reach this state of flow because the challenge, I mean, maybe it is for some people. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't want to rule it out, but to use that peanut butter and jelly example, it would be difficult to reach a state of flow because the challenge right. is not and the other high enough. And that is that the challenge is, is subjective and it changes over time. So as you get better at something, the challenge is diminished. Mm-hmm. So, so with video editing for you, it, like when you were doing video editing in a certain manner, let's say on Instagram with that app you were using, you maxed out your ability at some point and you couldn't really get creative at a certain point because you, it wasn't that challenging because you knew all the tools so well. Well, that's actually an, a, a great example because, yeah, I, I used to edit specifically for like three years just on my phone using InShot, which is an app. And then when I started to do the YouTube series, I took it to Adobe Premiere uh, Pro, and that was a new challenge for me. And it was really tough at first. It took me a lot longer to finish uh, a task because I had to learn how to do the fundamentals and everything. But now a year on from from starting to learn how to use this software, you're right. I guess now my skills have caught up to the challenge. And so it's still a hard enough challenge. And it's now my skills manifest right. in a way that I can reach right. this flow state. And with such a diverse application like that Adobe, it's, it's, there's so much to it, even though you're very good at, a, at, a, at what you do in it now, there's a huge amount that you don't do on that. So you, you always have the ability to expand the challenge. And that's why something like video editing can be a great place to reach the flow state, I think. And computer programming is equivalently an infinite challenge, probably, where exactly. you're never going to master it because there's also always new softwares and new scripts and new languages coming out. And you have to... So, so, so when you reach a level where something becomes too easy for you, I mean, I don't think that you're probably there yet with computer programming, nor am I with video editing, but if you get to this point where you fully, is it now time to look for a new challenge? Is that one of the things that you need to like get out of your comfort zone? It could be. I mean, but also like you were saying in that the last eight weeks have been pretty much exhausting for you because the challenge, like being constantly challenged can all, it can become exhausting and there's cycles to everything. So it, once you get really good at something, you know, there's something to be said for just being really good at that one thing and doing your doing, staying in your wheelhouse and doing your thing for, I don't know, a year. So that was your day today. You woke up, you listened to Bobby Light. 
And did he get you? I ran. You ran. Got myself in the right Where did you run? Where did you run? I ran from my house to Barosliga at the city park in Budapest, right near Hushuk Tere. Hushuk Tere. Nice. Hero Square. Uh, Yeah. uh, Just stopped at one of the monuments in the park. Did a little stretching. Did a little movement. Loosened up my body for the day. And then, uh, yeah, got back. Turned on Bobby Light and got smashing. Cool. And you were sending me some stuff earlier today about uh, stoic stoic philosophy, stoic meditation. What, what is stoic meditation? What, what does that mean to you? Well, it's stoic philosophy. And I was, tell, I was telling you the relationship between stoic philosophy and just meditation. Because there's the show on Netflix called uh, Headspace Guide to Meditation. Anyway, it's um, just kind of like a little sitcom show where half of it is kind of like anecdotal stories about meditation and explaining what it's all about. It's about a guy who was a psychologist and then went to become a Buddhist monk. And now he just runs this thing called headspace. And, uh, so stoic philosophy is a book I'm reading about reading about right now. And do you meditate? Yes. It was something at, when I started work at Prezi, there was someone there who opened me up to the idea of just breathing. Basically you just sit down and just focus on your breathing for 10 minutes. It's kind of like what you do in yoga, but without moving. Should we just do that now? Just sit here quietly for 10 minutes? I, th- I think that would be very uh, I think the compelling. For the, they can <laughs> but uh, the idea is that it's little, little bicep curls for your brain. So when you just sit there and try to think about your breath going in and out for 10 minutes, within 30 seconds or less, your brain's going to go somewhere else. You're going to think about what you had for lunch that day, something you said to somebody that you don't like, something like that. And you just have to recognize that you're no longer thinking about breathing and then just slowly bring yourself back to focusing to breath. And what you're doing is you're like doing bicep curls with your brain. You're just teaching yourself like. So eventually your brain after doing this, let's say for a period of three months every day, 10 minutes, deep breathing, meditation, your brain is stronger and you have what an easier time of channeling deeper thoughts i think i think yeah the idea is that you're you you become better at dealing with distraction and you become better at dealing with when when you're going through work and everything you might get a text and you might just hearing the vibration or just seeing the thing pop up on your phone might take you out of work and then you look at the text and then you realize 10 minutes later that you've been distracted by just one event and I think with this, doing this meditation, you train yourself to be able to say no to these things mm-hmm. and you teach your brain the ability to just breathe these distractions out and focus on what's really important. Well, I would, I, I need to incorporate that into my life. I mean, I do not meditate. I would say though, that before the bathhouses were closed, because I go yes. to the bathhouses a lot more often exactly. than your average Joe, unless you happen to be like a 83 year old Hungarian retiree named Balaj. But for the most part, I, I, I would go like three or four times a week. And for me, that was perfect meditation time, specifically because there's no technology in the bathhouse, unless you're a real sicko. Uh, but it's not a good idea to bring your phone into the bath. And yeah, it was just a great forced meditation, even right. more so than the bath, the sauna, which I would go bath, sauna, cycle it back and forth, steam room. And I, I really, really, really miss it because I think... I never thought of it as like meditation in the same way where like you're sitting in front of a, I don't know, a, a window and closing your eyes and deep breathing and all that. But it was for me two hours of meditative time. And Absolutely. it's something that I desperately, desperately miss. That's one thing that for some reason the show really brought it out in me, but I've always like been fascinated by this idea, but meditation is not a big deal. And every single person does meditation. 
it's that's why like the word meditation is kind of hard it's just like focus or breathing because yeah in the sauna the sauna is the perfect example because you have nothing to think about and you're so stressed that you're almost forced for me at least i'm forced to think about my breathing because i if i don't i think i'm gonna die and i just have to just say okay (laughs) take a breath in and take a breath out and then as soon as i don't think about that I get nauseous and I get freaked out because I'm so hot. And then I'm forced to just tell myself, you're going to be fine. Just breathe. So that's why I think the sauna is like the best kind. Yeah. I mean, the sauna is great for so many things. Yeah. And that's also, that's something that I used to like I, the sand the, basically when you go into the saunas in Budapest and probably everywhere, uh, there's usually a sand dial of like a 15 minute timer with intervals of five minutes. <laughs> and I remember when I first started seriously using the sauna, I would try to go in for like 10 minutes and see if I could make it. And by the 10th minute, I was like really, really anxious and my body was sort of writhing in pain. And then I finally conquered that. And then I would go to 15. I think once I even got it up to like 25. But either way, that for me was like a 15 minute of just like, oh my God, I feel so much better afterwards. I mean, usually you feel like really not so good in the immediate aftermath because your body is sort of hyper-stressed. But then once you get into the cold pool and you wash everything off, a trip to a Kirai bathhouse for me, which involved probably three or four cycles into the sauna and three or four cycles into the various pools, it would just be like pure bliss walking outside. I mean, I really, really miss that. This is what that that like mental bicep thing is all about. So like just the same way you feel good about doing a workout after achieving something, that's what like when you leave the sauna, you feel that same achievement. And and when you do meditation, you feel that same achievement. And it's like, you've taken this like concerted time to try challenge yourself to something and you've failed, but you've also succeeded. Like you, so you, you started to seriously meditate when you started to work for Prezi, is that when you, well, not, not seriously. It's just, that's when I was open to the idea of just, Hey, in the morning, sit down for 10 minutes and breathe. That's what the guy just told me. He was like, it's not complicated. And do you do that just every do day for times in my life. Like for a few week spans, I would do it every day, but it never caught on to the point where it was, you know, like every single day for months I was doing it, you know, it comes in and out of my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And right now what we were talking about, the stoic, I'm listening to this book about stoic meditation, stoic philosophy. You got me saying stoic meditation. So Stoic philosophy is a, actually, so one of the founders of Stoic philosophy, one of the like stalwart representatives of the practice is Marcus Aurelius, one of the, and he, he has a famous book called the, isn't Marcus Aurelius? Marcus Aurelius, exactly. Yeah, the meditations. Well, that's why I'm calling it Stoic meditation because his book is called, I think, the Stoic meditations. Oh, you're right. You're right. Interestingly enough, which I I mentioned in our previous episode with Nausicaa and Therese, because we were talking about Rome and Budapest. It was called Aquincum back then during the Roman days. Right, right. And Aquincum was a province of, Bud- of of the Roman Empire located on the Buddha side of the Danube. The Romans, they didn't really go to the Pest side of the Danube. The Danube was sort of the frontier of the empire. But Aquincum became, became over a 400-year period, a thriving part of the outskirts of Rome. And Marcus Aurelius, I believe he was active, don't quote me on this, between like 160 and 180. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote part of his Stoic meditations on the banks of the Danube. Um, so that's pretty cool. If you ever listened to read, to the, read that book, it's fascinating. It's a very interesting experience. Not like any other book you've read, I would suppose. Have you read any of that book? I did. I, I read, I made an episode of Walking with Willie about uh, Roman Budapest. 
and I read fragments of it. I don't believe I was it's a very fragmented book. So it's a perfect way to read it. It's basically just him taking notes. What do you like about the book? What's cool about it? That book, uh, to, to be honest, didn't really speak to me. I mean, there, there are parts I listen to everything. So if it's some books are much more tailored to a reading experience, that one I would say is a reader. So, but, but, but what, what, what is the Stoic meditation? Okay, what, so what this, is, what does Marcus Aurelius talk about? This book. Oh, do you, about that or the one that I'm listening to? It doesn't, it doesn't okay, need to be so spe- one, specific, so the, but Stoicism in general. Okay, yeah. So this, okay. So Stoicism in general, it is this concept that everything you feel, every thing that happens in life is not, a uh, a reaction to the world. It's not caused by the world or everything that's around you. Everything you feel is based on your opinion of what happens. So there's like three actors, let's say. There's the outside world, which influences you. There's your judgment or your opinion of that thing. And then there's your feelings. So those are the three things. And this is where like stoic meditation or stoicism separates itself from many other philosophies in that there's this middleman. There's this basically your active brain, your active perception, your opinion about things that you have control over that affects how you feel about everything. So it's like your perception. And the whole idea of stoicism is that you have power over that perception and you can step in at that phase. So when you are working and you hear a car alarm going on outside and you just get so frustrated because it's like, oh, why is that car alarm going on outside? It's so loud and annoying. It's like, ah, I hate it. <laughs> and the idea is that there's nothing inherently bad about the car alarm. It's just your opinion. You developed some opinion that it's frustrating for you that it's going on and it's like bothering you, but that, that, that doesn't have to happen. So to be a stoic in that situation would be to sort of filter out the frustration that you have from the car alarm and just focus on the task at hand or just take a step back and say, okay, there's a car going on, a car alarm going on outside. And that is something that's happening and my feelings are irrelevant and I'm just going to keep moving yeah. forward. This is actually where, so a lot of, a lot of my understanding of all this is a hodgepodge of things. So my other favorite thing is this is water is a commencement speech by David Foster Wallace, a famous uh, author, American author who passed away in the last decade. I'm not sure. I believe he committed suicide. He commis- no? Yeah. committed suicide. Um, so this, this is water is a commencement speech he gave. And the whole idea actually is very much stoic philosophy. And I never knew this at the time, but this one speech, it's a 20 minute speech has stuck with me since the day I listened to it. And I try to listen to it like once a year, what, what, what stuck with you? Something from the speech. The, it, basically it's the, it's preaching. His speech is sort of preaching this idea of you can control your opinion. It, he basically says, you have control of your perception. He, he says that when you graduate from liberal arts, people often say that you're well-adjusted. You're a well-adjusted person. And he basically says that all, all being well-adjusted is, is that you have a good control over your perception. So when you hear that car alarm going off, you could think, ah, this is inconvenient for me because I want quiet time and I'm working. But that's your perception. If you could put yourself in the perception of the owner of that car and that car was actually trying to be robbed by somebody and that car alarm was the only thing that saved them from losing, you know, $10,000 worth of their life, then that car alarm becomes an amazing thing. And if you can put your perception into that person's shoes, it becomes a wonderful thing and you don't have to be frustrated about it. Well, that, uh, sort of applies well, probably to the massive car alarm that's 
blaring in the world right now, which would be, I, I guess, coronavirus, where that could be something that sort of jolts you out of your state of happiness, your state of uh, being. And all of a sudden there's sirens going on everywhere. Red, red alert, red alert, red alert. Stop what you're doing. And I guess the first impulse would be to become incredibly frustrated by that. But you could look at it as a potential lifesaver because maybe it readjusts your habits. Maybe it mm -hmm. gets you into a... And I think even more so than that, to be stoic during the time of coronavirus would be to accept this as something that's happening and just be like, this is water. And you have to work as well as you can within the set of circumstances uh -huh. that you're yeah. dealt. Just to re-give the this is water to give that like context, he starts the whole speech with a joke. And he says, two young fish are swimming along. And an older fish swims by and says, morning, boys. How's the water? A couple minutes go by and the little fish are swimming along. And one fish turns to the other one and says, what the fuck is water? <laughs> And yeah, it just goes to show that, yeah, you, you have to understand what soup you're swimming in, what, what perceptions you built for yourself, what opinions you have that you live within. Because and yeah, I totally agree. This great application to COVID. Because the fish, the fish would never know what water is because they're just fish, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they've grew up their whole life <laughs> in water. They never questioned the fact that they're just like, you know, this is the world they live in. They don't, they don't know that it's called water. They've never been to the surface. And they don't have a language, or they do have a language, but it's a different type of language. They just spit bubbles at each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that you talk about perception. I actually have a book right here next to me by Aldous Huxley oh, no uh, called The Doors of Perception. What? And it's all about uh, mescaline. Uh, he basically, the, the whole book is just a, a massive mescaline. The trip. Mexican tequila? No, it's mescal. That's mescal. Mescaline is a psychoactive drug that I believe is used in many native uh, indigenous people's religious ceremonies, but it, it basically Whoa. causes a massive psychoactive uh, hallucinogenic reaction uh, that, according to Mr. Huxley, is, is pretty life-changing and transcendent. All this Huxley, he's the Brave New World guy? Exactly. Yeah. So what's the, what's the plot of this book? He just takes mescaline and trips, and that's it. And he just writes about it? Yeah, it's a, it's a short story. I mean, I read it. A little while ago, but it's, you know, you just look here. So it is a, is, it's in a live context. Account. How significant is the enormous heightening under mescaline of the perception of color? For certain animals, it is biologically very important to be able to distinguish certain hues. But beyond the limits of their utilitarian spectrum, most creatures are completely colorblind. Bees, for example, spend most of their time deflowering the fresh virgins of the spring. But as von Frisch who knows who that guy is, has shown they can recognize only a very few colors. Man's highly developed color sense is a biological luxury, inestimably precious to him as an intellectual and spiritual being, but unnecessary to his survival as an animal. So I think that's just something that he thought of while he was tripping on mescaline and then wrote it down. Yeah, so it's all just a live account. He just takes a bunch of mescaline yeah. and starts writing. That was actually a very interesting example that I just randomly flipped to because that was it was all about the perception of animals and how they perceive things different than us and yeah. to use the example of colors instead of water. But um, yeah, Mr. Huxley, Brave New World, Doors of Perception. Wild. I'd what? recommend it. You can, you can borrow it, actually. Let I'd me just give to it to you. Right yeah, now. yeah. I can't really read, but <laughs> I'm illiterate. I just, I've just killed my reading brain cells with all this audible audiobook stuff. Doors of Perception. Let me get that back, actually. I okay, yeah, that. I want to I hear some more. Do you have any other saved passages from that? I have no saved passages. These are all just randomly... Uh, we now spend a good deal more on drink and smoke than we spend on education. This, of course, is not surprising. 
the urge to escape from selfhood and the environment is in almost everyone almost all the time. The urge to do something for the young is strong only in parents and in them only for the few years during which their children go to school. Mm -hmm. Equally unsurprising is the current attitude toward drink and smoke. In spite of the growing army of hopeless alcoholics, in spite of the hundreds of thousands of persons annually maimed or killed by drunken drivers, popular comedians still crack jokes about alcohol and its addicts. And in spite of the evidence linking cigarettes with lung cancer, practically everybody regards tobacco smoking as being hardly less normal and natural than eating. I guess this is uh, an old book because I think nowadays the views towards smoking have cer certainly changed. I don't know about that. I mean, it's still super popular in Europe. <clears throat> yeah, but still, I mean, the, he says here that tobacco smoking is, is regarded as hardly less normal and natural than eating. I, I think for most people today, they understand that there are some, but you're right. You're, Europe and America definitely have different yeah. uh, context about uh, tobacco smoke, but let me just read one more line of this because he says, from the point of view of the rationalist utilitarian, this may seem odd. For the historian, it is exactly what you would expect. A firm conviction of the material reality of hell never prevented medieval Christians from doing what their ambition, lust, or covetousness suggested. Huh. That's fascinating. Lung cancer, traffic accidents, and the millions of miserable and misery-creating alcoholics are facts even more certain than was in Dante's day, the fact of yeah. the inferno. But all such facts are remote and unsubstantial compared with the near-felt fact of a craving here and now for release or sedation, for a drink or a smoke. So do you think he's saying... So i kind of like not sure if I caught the end, but... Is he saying, or what's the deal with the human condition and just flying, the, flying in the face of things that we know are horrible for us? Well, I think there is just this, this craving that he talks about, this urge to, to have something, for example, a drink, which I'm reaching for right now. Yeah, let's, get, let's get another drink. Now that we're talking about how horrible this is for us, can you pour some of that <laughs> poison water into my glass, please? The Abigail. This is actually, I mean, this just shows you like the way he says that comedians glorify drink. Yeah, I was going to say. So, so do... Uh, companies that are, are trying to sell it to you i mean in this case this is named abigail tokai formant and abigail is like the two-year-old daughter of audrey and janos and mm -hmm. now i have like an emotional resonance because i went to their cavern i even met abigail and now i'm drinking the fruits of audrey and janos's hard work during the january late harvest in tokai which is probably a grueling grueling process and it feels sort of significant and atmospheric and uh delightful to me it's a delicious one. It's a really delicious one. Cheers to uh, Cheers. Audrey and Janos and uh, Abigail. Abigail. But it, it, that was probably one of the more depressing examples from the book. Uh, well, I mean, he was tripping on mescaline. Let's give him, let's give him a break. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of it, if you, if you read it, it's just like colorful. But, but I, I find that a very compelling passage because he talks about <clears throat> the days of Dante and the Inferno. Mm -hmm. And when the Christian church and the Catholic church still had a vice grip over the decision-making and the free will of humanity. And even in those days when the punishment was potential perpetual burning hell, people still committed sin because of their natural cravings and their urges and things of that nature. So if that wasn't enough to stop people, then obviously a few warnings about uh, tobacco being bad for you are not going to stop you from reaching for a smoke. Right. It makes me wonder, actually, what's a more compelling, uh, what's a more compelling punishment? Is it the punishment that, hey, science says 
this is going to kill you. Like this is undeniable fact. Or is it that this mystical being, yeah, this undeniable hell, like that's the worst thing that can happen. I well, they, they also do say that human beings have a death wish and that is sort of like the epitome and the foundation of modern day advertising is to like sell people their death wish. That's why like the Marlboro man or things. Of Does like, that frustrate you? That puts me into a, a spiral of hatred. Well, it depends what your relationship is to death. If you think that death is like a, an ending or if you think it's just a, a new beginning, but, but that's my choice. If I want to flirt with death, that's fine. But if, you know, the system starts pointing me in that direction, basically like with, with, you know, marketing and capitalism and all these things that are just like telling all your kids to eat frosted flakes because it's a healthy, balanced part of a good breakfast when really it's going <laughs> to cause the obesity rates in America skyrocket. I mean, that's so it, what, what, what about it frustrates you? The fact that we're sold frosted flakes, even though they lead to diabetes, di- uh, diabetes, I guess diabetes and obesity. <laughs> I guess so. Okay. So one conclusion we've, okay, not conclusion. One thing we've stated is that it's part of the human condition to, what did we say? Not flirt with, not flirt with death, but uh, what'd you say? Just to have a death wish. Have to, to have a death wish. That's one thing when it's every individual's condition to have that. But when giant corporations start putting hundreds of people in a pipeline to produce marketing and convincing stuff, whether it's newspaper articles and videos that push you down that path. That's another story. And I think there just needs to be some kind of limitation and some kind of control on this power that, you know, you're just, well, I would agree. I mean, I think that that is one of the, the basic fundamental, uh, diseases of modern day capitalism is that on left unregulated corporations and businesses will try to milk every cent out of us, even if it leads us to less than savory ends. Such yeah. as like, you know, making an entire population f- yeah. fat because Tony the Tiger is a orange. They're strike. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do we do about that? I don't know. I've talked about this with my brother a lot. This is my, uh, this is kind of my brother speaking through me. He gets so upset about cereal. Like his biggest thing is cereal lately and just added sugar and everything like soda and cereal are just the death of America basically because it's the obesity problem and the obesity problem links into the like healthcare system. Every Anyway, so my theory is so capitalism doesn't feel like it's going away and I, I don't my theory is that every individual has to be taught how to educate and make better decisions so i guess it starts with education because well, yeah that, that's i mean everything starts with education but one thing i would say that it's it's almost a luxury of the upper class to be able to think about these things particularly on a systems wide basis because if mcdonald's and frosted flakes is the difference between feeding your kids or having them starve then that's what you're going to do and if it's the cheapest option then that's the decision that you're going to make i suppose that better education could teach people cheap ways to eat healthy and if that was something that you were given an experience of there's many ways for this so, so you could also educate the people with money to say like, hey, you have enough money to help build a better world. So just start buying, start putting more of your, don't put your money in these places that it's going to be bad for humanity in the long run. Like put your money in the more healthy options because you're going to be paying more than everybody else now, but you can afford it. And if you, if everybody in your tier starts doing this, then that company can start lowering its prices and being more competitive. This is, I mean, I mean, this is something I just thought of now, but this is like the Tesla model. 
the electric cars were not convenient and they were not cost effective. But at the beginning, they just built these electric cars that cost $100,000 for the super rich and they weren't practical. But they were doing that for five years. And with all that money, they did a ton of R&D and slowly bought the price down. And now you can buy a Tesla for $30,000. And electric cars are beginning to become more popular. So that's almost a, a boon for capitalism. That's, that's saying that capitalism can work to create exactly. solutions that are good for the planet. With the proper pushing in the right direction. Yeah. And what pushing is that? I have no idea. This Is that the, just Elon Musk wanting to be a, a beloved modern day genius that has, has pushed us there? I mean, it was practical. I mean, for him, it was the only he wanted to make a like a an electric car that everybody used, and that was a very pra- practical approach. M- some might argue the only practical approach in capitalism. Do you like Elon Musk? Is that someone that you admire? For sure. I mean, absolutely. I think it's hard to be a technical person and not, to some degree, admire him. It's pretty impressive what he's doing. So, what do you admire about him? Just the fact that he's created such a transcendent company. I mean, there's just, companies. just so many bleeding edges he's on, you know? I mean, he's made electric cars like a thing of, like, the, the masses. He's done a lot with solar power and advancing how, like, how fast solar is moving and making California very renewable. And he's also doing work with the Boring Company. It just, that one's more funny, the Boring Company. But it's What also, is the Boring Company? He's working on drilling tunnels below L.A. and below all cities to try and reduce congestion on the streets. And, and he named it the Boring Company because it's boring is like the drill a hole. Yeah. And it's also like yeah. a boring name for a company. Right. So, yeah. And it, so um, I forget the exact phrase, but he talks about key principles. And it's basically like he takes problems. He, his philosophy is that he takes problems and breaks them down to their uh, fundamental parts and tries to make the fundamental parts more efficient. And with the boring company, his like concept is basically just make the tunnel smaller. So right now, if you want to drill a tunnel that cars are going to use, it has to be like 24 feet at least in, in wide. And that's a very huge hole to drive through rock and it's super expensive. And when you make the diameter of the hole smaller, it becomes not just like doubly as cheap, it becomes exponentially cheaper I, I just listened to what, so if you make a 12 feet wide tunnel, it's not just half as expensive. It's like 10 times. It's magnitudes. It's exponentially. Exponentially. Less yeah. So that's what they're doing. And it's like trying to change the regular, but anyway, so and he's building rockets. That yeah, are I was going to say boring is not the main thing. So he's also doing Neuralink, which is de- doing stuff with neurology and like doing brain computer interface stuff. And then, so I've, I've heard about Neuralink before. And my impression of it is that it's basically a way for us to like, basically tech, take the next leap forward uh in terms of like information exchange and uh yeah uh-huh. that's like the broad the broader like the long-term vision is yeah like a, a more a bigger bandwidth communication between brain and computer right now your bandwidth of communicating with your phone is your thumbs so you have it's binary you have two fingers so you can only you have two thumbs you can only type so fast there's a small bandwidth and the idea is if we can increase that bandwidth, that when you start using a computer, you now have 10 digits. And that's a lot faster than typing with a phone. But is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? Like, I think yes. Objectively speaking, is that a good thing that we make progress in that direction and we get a greater increase in the terms of speed and efficiency of communication? Sort of like a cleanest, dirty shirt. It's going to happen. Like Technology is getting faster, getting better. And like at some point, I mean, you know, we're talking 
long in the future, like, even if it's centuries from now, even if it's, you know, hundreds really of years from now. Do you think it's going to be that long, though? Because no, I mean, even if it's hundreds of years from now where technology becomes actually something we have to fear, like just technology, not people behind technology, but actually some kind of computers. Like the computers s- become sentient and we enter like a matrix maybe phase not of sentient, But maybe there's a program that gets a little, goes a little crazy. Maybe it's a virus that somehow somebody leaks out and it just fucks up everybody's computers. Like that's the, you don't need a sentient virus to just accidentally create a computer virus that really fucks a lot of shit up. Well, from a philosophical sense, it's sort of like, what's the difference between that and the virus that we're facing right now with the coronavirus where we've created, or maybe we didn't create, but overpopulation, eating bats, whatever you yeah. want to call it, there has been like a virus that has leaked out. But then I guess the, the, the only fear would be from an individual basis, not from a species-wide basis, but from an individual basis, are these increases in technology making us happier, healthier, more fulfilled individuals? Yes and no. I mean, is social media making us happier, healthier individuals or making us, you know, making us have horrible understandings of body image and like bullying well, it's, it's, and all this kind of stuff? Like there, are, you, there are good and bad things to every development. It's and funny so, when you even when you even say that it's almost said with an air of like, of course, social media is a terrible thing because it's like when it first came out, I think like 10 years ago, there was a much different feeling about social media since it was all about this like, wow, interconnectivity and we can communicate with our friends. And even for me, like I remember always saying, do I like social media? Do I not like social media? And always my fallback was, yeah, it can be like a time suck. And I think there's this inherent sense that we want to spend less time on our phones. But the bright side is that you can stay connected to people all around the world. And that's almost like an absolute good, or at least it was an absolute good. But now more and more, I feel like people are viewing social media as like uh, as an evil that's sort of tearing apart the fabric of society. Or do you disagree with that? Well, it's got to be a tool and not like in a lot of ways, social media uses us. I mean, you can get in a phase where social media is using you like me with YouTube. YouTube uses me. I mean, I am absolutely a fool to the recommendation engine. Like I open YouTube just because it's become a physical reaction. I sit down on the toilet. I sit down on the couch. I lay down in bed. I like my thumb just clicks YouTube and it just happens. And then the recommendation engine is good enough that it knows what I'm kind of interested in. And I just, I just watch it. And YouTube's doing that because they're getting money from me doing that. Like they're, they're getting good at doing that because they make money by doing that. And so if we turned it into more of a tool and we make sure that everything we do is using it like a tool, it can be, that's when it can become really powerful. And and then that's and it's it's happening. People do it right now. You and I do it. Everybody in some way uses technology as a tool. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to to think about um, the the development of social media. For instance, right before this podcast, I did something which I've never done before. Apparently, do you know, you're a YouTube guy. I mean, I guess so am I. I have, I have a fucking... I'm a YouTube guy. I have a YouTube vlog, but I don't really know how it works from a consumer standpoint because I never have been a big YouTube consumer. Uh, but there was this sort of feature on YouTube that was like Instagram stories, but it was YouTube stories. Have you ever used that before? Yeah, yeah. I mean, YouTube, the little shorter clips. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, yeah, it's part of my... I'm such a YouTube rat. 
but it was it, it was literally I, I did it literally just before this podcast and it was like by far i think the most addicting social media experience i've ever had in my life and every single video was incredible there was like one video which i didn't like uh which like was basically something that just never had an ending it was like a kid that put like menthos or some sort of like bucolic acid into like a bottle of coke and threw it in a pool and it just never exploded but everything else was like just electric 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 content and it was like so creative and so interesting and so compelling wrapped up into little 15 second clips and i could not take my eyes off it i think i watched it for like an hour and a half it's it's crazy it's crazy i'm I'm just i'm just sharing this uh this link for people i'm gonna i'm gonna let people know that they can let us know if they want to call in let us know if you want to call in. So this is a this is a Facebook live link, which I'm now making an Instagram story of, and I'm going to put a swipe up on it so that the people yes. can watch Tell us the people. talk and drink wine and drink Hungarian whiskey. And this is happening live. It's happening live. So uh, just to bring it back, actually, to the the neural link thing eventually yes the idea is that we reduce the bandwidth between brain and computer but in the short term in the short term it's just it's it's mostly about healing people and helping people that have uh, you know uh, injuries to their to their nervous systems and all this and this is fascinating stuff but basically they put little they they put little electrodes little wires into your brain wait this is the neural link that you're talking this about is the neural link elon musk company but what uh-huh. were we talking about i don't want to go back here no right? no please go back there I, I'm, I'm interested in, in in fleshing this out a little bit so they the way that it works is that they can put neurons and, and nodes and things on the back of your head they and put then, little wires next to neurons in your brain and the little wires can both receive and send information so they can tell when your neurons in your brain are firing but they can also act like a neuron and fire electric signals to send information to your brain so this means you can talk to your phone and your phone can talk to you but yeah so hundreds of years from now maybe this means that we can just think a text and send it to our friend why why are you so sure that it's going to be hundreds of years from now i feel like is i mean it it might it's probably it's much shorter more like decade from now but but no the only reason i say it like that is because I, i as far as I've heard, and I'm much less knowledgeable about these technological developments than you are, but as far as I've heard, like this is going to be an exponential thing where all of a sudden we reach. No, no. I mean, it's, it's a hype machine. So Elon Musk, we've learned from Elon that he's a hype machine. You've seen the like breaking window of the Cybertruck, the indestructible truck. They go on the show and they break the window. It's just, you know, he's a hype machine. He, he, he knows the power of social media and he knows that if you make a splash, it's going to get a ton of people interested, and it doesn't have to be that valid. It doesn't have to be factual. We all know that. Well, that's what he just did with Bitcoin, right? Didn't he just like buy? I don't like, know what he did with Bitcoin. He, no, he bought like a shit ton of Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin. You know more about cryptocurrencies than I do. What <laughs> you, you, you're interested in, like Ethereum, right? I'm not. I don't. I would not. I will not claim to be a crypto person, but yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about it. So you're like the opposite of Elon Musk because he apparently bought like a shit ton of Bitcoin. And I mean, Bitcoin to me, it just already like artificially inflated. I don't really understand it. I guess now it is a commodity and it is a currency, just like anything else. Yeah, I mean, but that's where. But that's where I like don't get why it's so revolutionary. Because to me, it's just like, okay, another version of gold, right? It's like a stored value. Yeah, but I mean, do you, what, what, do you get why gold is important? Not really, but that's like the whole crux of economics as a philosophy and as a discipline in the first place is that like it's all predicated on human behavior and exactly. sort of like this, 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 this basically lust and craving for like shiny objects. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even, but then that's why Bitcoin's even confusing because it's not even shiny. <laughs> not even cool. I don't, I don't want to wear a Bitcoin. Well, well, that's why they need uh, fucking people like Elon Musk to be beating the chest and beating the drum, right? Yeah, but I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. That, yeah, like you said, Bitcoin is just it's just a controlled way of having like scarce resources that you can trade and prove that you have. But then again, there's this, also this feeling of like I'm missing out. I feel like that's that's like what the whole Bitcoin phenomenon is all about. Like, oh, no, I'm going to miss out because I've had that feeling as well. I see the charts going up. It's now at like forty five thousand, fifty thousand. And it's like, wow, if I had bought this thing when it was at three thousand. I could be one of these shoulda, coulda, woulda, Willie. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. But then again, like, what are the Bitcoin people really spending their money on? Like, they make the money, they they spend it on like flashy things, cars. But then you could have some geniuses that are just using it as stored value, reinvesting it into the traditional stock market. I don't know. It's just like this anything. is another thing that we'll see. We'll see decades from now what it becomes. It it, it it very well could become like a cornerstone of what the future economy looks like. But for now, it's really hard to estimate. I think. Well, I think something that's interesting about Bitcoin is this idea of like a crypto anarchy where like the traditional systems of governance that we have constant reminders of, of failing us and letting us down and leadership that is corrupt and thieving to, to not mince words about it. A crypto anarchy could fray the, the bonds of traditional leadership and traditional government mm-hmm. and create this new sort of apolitical uh, international regime mm-hmm. of things that are less reliant on like the Fed mm-hmm. in America or like the the European Reserve Bank. But then again, my one like caveat towards that is like what? We're going to have a crypto anarchy and then the crypto people are going to be in charge. You really want like an over caffeinated 23 year old that's trading Bitcoin to be like the one that's pulling levers in society. I don't know. Yeah. This is actually something I was thinking about with, uh, um, Okay, you were saying with the social media and when it first started, people were super excited. And like, and I think that that just shows that there's not a lot of foresight. Maybe this comes back to the discussion we were happening, having with Americans being more positive and just like seeing the bright side of things before considering being critical. Um, to think about this like Bitcoin anarchy and you know leaving the traditional governance behind. That doesn't sound that good. <laughs> it yeah. sounds like a disaster. Well, I think the utopic version of all of this, like sort of cyber, uh, social media, from my limited knowledge of the subject, I think a lot of this philosophically was started in like the 90s and the early 2000s. And people had this real utopic version of what the Internet could bring to society. And this sort of goes along. If you look back at generational thinking, the post-Cold War world where capitalism sort of won. And the evil of communism was defeated and people sort of believed in this like idea of this march of progress. And that's sort of what the liberal belief system is all predicated on is that eventually we're going to get to this point of utopia. And it's gone from the days of, you know, brutal feudalism in the medieval era to the enlightenment, to a more rationalist sense of thinking, to the computer age, to this sort of clash between societies of communism and capitalism, and then the Western liberal democracies, they win. And we have this steady march of progress going into the future. And then I think that is where a lot of this utopic vision of the world started in like the 90s and the 2000s. But now I almost feel like we're in this like postmodern era where people are really questioning that. And they're, they're yeah, but does it end? I feel like it. It doesn't end at utopia. I feel like that all the books that we like, The Giver, 
all these books we read in high school were always about how utopias are false. It, it ends in dystopia. Yeah, yeah, they can't work. So, well, what do you think? Do you think that we're headed towards a brighter future or towards darker days? Same. I mean, the same. It's 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 impo- I mean, we're always right down the middle, right? I mean, you you can look back and say we're better than before or whatever, but you're always right down the middle. You're, when you're in it, you're in the middle of everything. It's there's good, there's bad. I mean, I don't know. Well, no, that's that's sort of like. I the, mean, the, they they make the argument of maybe the agricultural revolution back at like ten thousand years ago, or however long, like hundred thousand years ago. They they make arguments that that was bad for humanity that we started congregating in bigger groups. We would have been better off being a hunter gatherer tribe that, you know, life expectancy was 50, but we stayed in smaller groups. There was no such thing as a pandemic and we basically were just smart monkeys. But I mean, this is, I I don't know. I find it really hard to connect with these kind of arguments. Yeah. I mean, but what do you, what do you think? Where do you think these, you know, capitalism winning different people winning, are we headed to an end? Are we I mean, headed it, to it, a conclusion? it really depends on what, what side of the pillow I wake up on because sometimes I, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future and other times I'm incredibly pessimistic about the future. And I think that ultimately it, like, it doesn't really matter. It's sort of like this, this idea that we have the agency to really shift things is a little bit like narcissistic and self-indulgent in a way. Of course, there is certain specific movements and certain specific instances where humans have to rise up to the occasion and they have to overcome like inherent evil that faces us. Nazi Germany in World War II, racism in America, things of that nature, they need to be conquered and they need to be overcome. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of like really like shifting humanity towards this like utopic vision of tomorrow. And this is where like I, I have to take not exception with Elon Musk because I believe that he's doing tremendous things for the development and the mm-hmm. progress of society. But like, does he like view himself as sort of this godsend that is the one to, I don't know, is that, is that sort of like a cult that he's building around him? It's sort of like a manifestation of a modern day religion. I don't think so. I think he's aware of the fact, I mean, he's not, I mean, he's not solving a bunch of world problems. I mean, there's too many problems in the world to have one person be the God who solves them all. Yeah. There's so many little problems and he's helping solve some of them. He's not even solving, he's you're helping right. moving some things in the right direction. And I think he'd probably say that. I don't, I don't. No, you're right. And, and then again, but also, think, but that, that's where like, then I start to feel optimistic about things because Elon Musk, 300 years ago he would have just been some like fucking asshole salt merchant that was like maybe like manipulating a little fiefdom in uh uh baroque germany or something mm-hmm. you know like at least now like he's like yeah i'm elon musk i'm uh, gonna name my kids some like irrelevant set of symbols and letters and married some canadian like punk rock person and just build rockets that take us to mars it's kind of mm-hmm. cool so then then you start to think like oh maybe we're living in a utopia where like this sort of stuff can happen but then you look on the other side of the coin and you're seeing like a virus run rampant through impoverished communities and just like decimate people and mm-hmm. there's a lot of corruption and government malfeasance and you start to think wow maybe we're living in a dystopia yeah and then i think that's where you need to be a stoic right you need to just sort of like take things as they come and say i'm going to operate as well as i can within this mm-hmm. given set of circumstances one one thing about stoicism that they stress in the in the whole teachings is that you can't be quiet a stoicism a, a stoic is not quiet a stoic is loud and they're active in public discourse and they push things for betterment of humanity which is why i will agree with what you were saying with like right now we are not in good places there are a ton of horrible things happening socially like, you know, ra- yeah, racism in America, all kinds of things. And like, you know, 
impoverished people, like not f- food and no clean water around the world. Like, so there's so many big problems that need to be solved. And maybe, maybe that's what a utopia means that every individual that's born is born into a world that accepts them. And they, everybody basically has the equal right and the equal ability to succeed in the world. And maybe that, that, that maybe that is a utopic future that we could eventually be, that could be the North star. Well, I think that 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 is a good North star to aim for. And I was thinking about this the other day, but there's always a question of like, is it really worth it to try? Because you can have a tendency in times like these to feel a little nihilistic, like why not just live my life and just forget about all the problems of the world. But then what, what I feel as a push against that is like, if we don't try, if the people with good intentions don't try, then the people with bad intentions are going to win because you know that those bastards are going to try. How, can you really go through your life and not be approached with these problems, especially today with like with social media, like what we're saying? I mean, you're, you're constantly yeah, but there's a lot exposed. of people. There's a lot of people that turn it off. There's a lot of people that don't really give a fuck. They just but, they, they they take mm-hmm. it as like, okay, I'm um, I'm not going to be able to change things. I might as well just live my life as an individual. Mm-hmm. And there's two separate i mean there's a scope of manifestations of that because you have on the one hand like some sort of like hippie that's living off in the woods and enjoying the nature and has good intentions but doesn't really care enough to change things or you have like a completely just like nihilistic son of a bitch that sort of turns into like this dark emo uh maybe like drug fueled like sort of Mm -hmm. you know spiraling out of control individual Mm -hmm. and then you have a whole scope of people that exist within that spectrum Mm -hmm. but either way i think that that certain people have to try and push back against Mm -hmm. the negative forces in the world otherwise they're going to win yeah i think i think it's also about a it's a matter of scope of influence so we're talking about this is why it's kind of hard to talk about people like elon musk because it's very hard to relate to him because of scope his scope of influence is massive it's insanely big he's influencing how the auto industry works in the globe and he's making rockets go into so it's like almost doesn't make sense to talk about him because our scope of influence is not that big and probably will never ever most likely will never be that big unless we make it big <laughs> uh, but um, well, they, and, they, and they, having the scope of influence of one person is enough. Of, of you know, if your scope of influence is just yourself and maybe who you see throughout your day, that's more than enough. I think if if it be if if you just practice these concepts of making the world a better place in the tiny in whatever size of influence you have, that could be that that you know eventually that will lead to utopic as long as there's a uh, well understood concept of equality well that opens up for me a a question of is it better to strive to be an elon musk and like sort of a generational uh maybe even bill gates like philanthropic societal force or is it better to strive to be an educator in a small town where you can actually like really significantly make an impact and, and a difference in the lives of maybe it's just 80 kids over a period of 30 years but you can lead to the next Elon Musk or you can be the teacher and sort of have a more comfortable, uh, individualistic sense of self-worth that you're just sitting there and not just sitting there, but you know, you, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost w- more romantic in a sense. Yeah. I would hope that it's kind of like an incremental growth and there it's a, what do you call it? I hope that that would be stepwise to get to be the Elon Musk. You'd have to start by influencing in a smaller circle. At least that's the way I like to think about it. my plan is to just, influence my circle right now at the moment my circle is just the people i spend time with every day the people i work with and maybe if i share a post some of my friends on facebook and then maybe 
couple of years from now, I'll start releasing videos, some kind of teachings with the idea of reaching a broader audience. And, you know, maybe in the future that can, uh, you know, turn itself into a more consistent, bigger audience. And I can, you know, incrementally work my way up. But some people, and it's also fine to not want to grow as well. That's why I think that it's, it, no, I don't think it makes sense for people to strive to be Elon Musk. Strive to be whatever you want as long as you're just, you know, not being mean to people. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good foundational principle. Do you mind if I read one more passage from Please. this uh, Doors of Perception book? Yeah, the, the, the passage you didn't pick out, you just opened to a random page. These effects of mescaline are the sort of effects you could expect to follow the administration of a drug having the power to impair the efficiency of the cerebral reducing valve. When the brain runs out of sugar, the undernourished ego grows weak, can't be bothered to undertake the necessary chores, and loses all interest in those spatial and temporal relationships, which mean so much to an organism bent on getting on in the world. As mind at large seeps past the no longer watertight valve, all kinds of biologically useless things start to happen. In some cases, there may be extrasensory perceptions. Other persons discover a world of visionary beauty. To others, again, is revealed the glory, the infinite value and meaningfulness of naked existence, of the given unconceptualized event. In the final stage of egolessness, there is an obscure knowledge that all is actually all, that all is actually each. This is as near, I take it, as a finite mind can ever come to perceiving everything that is happening everywhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. I missed the beginning. What's the first sentence of that? These effects of mescaline are the sort of effects you could expect to follow the administration of a drug having the power to impair the efficiency of the cerebral reducing valve. So I take uh -huh. that to mean that mescaline... The cerebral reducing valve. What is that? The cerebral reducing valve to impair the, to impair the efficiency of the cerebral reducing valve. So I guess the cerebral reducing... What is it reducing? <laughs> but because what i understand from that is this loss of ego you, you lose egolessness you, yeah yeah you, you lose your concept of yourself so i think it's irrelevant what what the what the valve's actually reducing i mean if we were neuroscientists maybe we could give you a better answer but the point is that mescaline that is like the mechanical process that it takes and the the ultimate effect of that is that it reduces your ego yeah yeah I mean, this is also ties back into what we were talking about with perception and everything, because perception and your opinion of things is very much based into you looking at everything through the lens of yourself. So what do you think of when you think of the ego? I think of the this is water thing with David Foster Wallace, one thing that he said, and I was listening to this while I got onto a plane. For some reason, I remember that because I can remember when I this clicked in me and it was when I was getting on the plane. Um, it's this idea that you when you enter the world until now everything that you've done everything that's happened in your life has been completely apparent to you and only you every sensation has been has you know it, everything you've seen everything you've heard tasted entered yourself through your brain your senses put it in your head and then you experienced it completely in a silo by yourself when you shared it with other people you shared it by talking to them about it or sharing your ideas but you never actually shared the sensation so everything that happened to you is in yourself and so when you think about when you have when you base an opinion about something you're always 
coming through this understanding of the world that, you know, everything is in your silo and it's so hard to take yourself out of that concept. So that's why we need mescaline. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then, yeah, so that's my idea of the ego. The ego is this thing that we build through this process of constantly being, you know, just given information by our brain when really it's, it's a broader world. Have you ever experienced egolessness? No, no, for sure. Not never. I don't think so. What about a loss of ego? Mm, probably not. I, I mean, the ego is a very powerful, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think when I think about the ego, I think about Freudian psychology, I suppose you have, yeah, the, I, the love, id. I love this. This is my favorite. The id. I mean, the, 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 the best lesson I got about Freudian psychology was in ninth grade from a teacher, an English teacher of mine named Miss Salomon and Miss Salomon, we read Lord of the Flies. And no Lord way. The, you learned the, about the in super ego? Oh, she was a great teacher, a phenomenal teacher. Uh, one of the best I've ever had. A little bit of a hardo, but, you know, most good English teachers are. Yeah. And uh, she taught us about Lord of the Flies and about how you have the id, which is like the kids when they like basically smash uh, piggies heads out on the on the rock. Right. Doesn't that happen? Lord of the Flies. <laughs> what is it? There, there's like a, a huge anarchic element to it. And there's they like they kill piggy. I, I believe he got I only read the spark notes of every single book in high school. So I don't really know. Killed with a rock over the ledge. Either way. But the id, the id is what's acting out when the kids they get into the wild. And yeah. you have the ego, which is like your, your brain's uh, reaction to your consciousness and your consciousness and all that. And then the superego is like society and all the other things that we learn. And then that's like your, the rules, the rules that you build from society. And then the ego is the one that chooses between the superego and the id. Okay. That's, well, that's, that's what I understood. So, but so I'm, it's funny that you learned it from the Lord of the Flies because we learned the id, superego and ego from Frankenstein, the book Frankenstein. And with that, I can't remember. I think for the monster is obviously the id because it's driven by like just desire. Uh, I can't remember who's the superego and the ego. Uh, but, but either way, the ego is a very powerful force in humans. And I suppose Aldous Huxley with that quote is talking about how mescaline reduces the cerebral reducing valve of the brain. And that helps achieve the state of egolessness. Mm -hmm. Egolessness is something that I, I think so that I once experienced an ego oh. death or I thought I did at least while was this before or after you knew about egolessness? Uh, it was after I took a pretty significant dose of LSD. Oh, there you go. And that'll I, teach you about egolessness. I, you know, I, I think maybe egolessness is, it's sort of like what is really your definition of the ego. But I, rem I remember more so than ever before thinking less about myself and more about the world around me. And that's almost a little bit simplistic because I think that sort of uh, suggests that I don't usually think about the world around me, which I certainly do. But I remember just feeling like I was utterly irrelevant. Like I did not matter at all. And I didn't really care what happened to me, but in like a good way. And it was a little bit scary. I mean, it freaked me the fuck out actually. But I remember afterwards feeling a sense of like sort of fulfillment that I'd achieved, I'd achieved something, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that sounds beautiful. And I think that, so one of my ideas is that like altruism is never real. Like there's no such thing as doing something for other people. You always have yourself in mind. And this is a byproduct of you living your life through your own fucking brain. And so for me, like egolessness, the closest thing 
I could see someone getting to is getting really good at stepping into your opinion formation, you know, stepping in to that step when you receive stimulation from the world. And before you generate an opinion about it, step in and like realize that, you know, you're there are more it's more than just your brain it's more than just you out there and try and challenge yourself to have a broader perspective is that, that something you think about when you're meditating no <laughs> what do you think about when you're meditating breath rising and falling just the chest. breath just breath and yeah. things that are going on during the day what if we uh give Marecki and Poulton a call yes i would love to hear what they have to say about meditation would you or, mind, would you mind filibustering for for 30 seconds while i go run to the bathroom yes yes i, I would mind you would mind yeah, all right no, that's fine no, I'll, no, I'll, I'll stay here and piss my pants all right one sec i can filibuster let's see what is there to filibuster about what's, what's your favorite type of cheese favorite type of cheese oh funnily enough okay great topic willie cheese so over christmas I had this concept to create a, my family, my last name is Bean. We call ourselves the Bean family. I had a concept of creating the Bean family lecture series. This is an event where after dinner, we, one of the Bean family members gets on stage, you know, stands in front of the family and gives a small presentation, a 10 minute talk about something. Maybe it's something they're interested in. Maybe it's something that they wanted to learn more about. Maybe it's just something that they thought was funny. And the reason for this was to give a presentation about something, to teach something to someone else, you really have to learn it to a very deep degree. And my brother chose to do a presentation about cheese. What is cheese? We eat cheese all the time. We love cheese. It's a beautiful thing. And we know it's dairy. But what the hell is cheese? So he tried to explain this to us and I found the conclusions completely delighting. And here you go. So cheese was discovered by a bunch of, I'm not sure people, old people way back in the day, I think in maybe 800 BC or 800 AD. I don't know. These guys put dairy inside of a goat bladder for transporting. And I think they forgot about it. And it ended up curdling inside the, the bladder and they found it months later and they, they were like, hmm, this is weird milk. It's solid now. And then they ate it and it tasted good. And they were like, whoa, this is crazy. And basically over the years, all these ways of aging dairy started being created and they discovered that it is different kinds of bacteria that eat and change the so dairy, when you leave it out, it starts to curdle. It changes the things in the milk. I don't really know. But the bacteria that make the milk curdle change how the final product tastes. And so when you eat a cheddar cheese, let's say, that is called cheddar cheese because it is from a bacteria that is something like cheddar bot cheddar alinum. It's like a, it's a bacteria that has cheddar in the name, and it originates only in a place in England where the first cheddar cheese was made. And because they stored, it's because these people stored the milk in a cave, and the kind of bacteria that's native to that land made the cheese taste like cheddar cheese. 
And so now it's, if you it's buy called ch- cheddar, England is the name of the place. Okay, it's called cheddar England. And, but now you can buy cheddar cheese anywhere because we can grow bacteria in a Petri dish. So you don't really need to be in a place to get that place's bacteria. So you can make cheddar cheese in Vermont where Willie and I went to school. And now that's where the best cheddar cheese is made. Sorry, England, but Vermont Chabot cheddar cheese is the best cheddar cheese. We took your bacteria. We took your cheese. And that's all I have to say about that. So that was a great filibuster. Thanks. The, 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 the end result was that Vermont cheddar is better than English cheddar? Yes. Any English person out there, fight me with a block of cheese. We'll see who wins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But so, yeah, bacteria makes cheese. The name of the cheese usually comes from the type of bacteria. I'm trying to add another link here to the Facebook live stream, but for some reason... Instagram is telling me that it's an invalid link. Why do you need a second link? Facebook. Willie's Willie's being... Oh, I can just share it on Facebook. That makes a lot more sense. Thank you, Ray. Okay, so after I... The main topic... (laughs) We were were asked if the main topic was crypto. The main topic is not crypto. I'm I'm pushing the the conversation away from crypto. Thank you, Norbert. We're, we're going to start the calling ins. We'll give you a ring. Okay, so I'm putting the link now on my own personal Facebook page. And now we are going to call Poulton and Marecki. Poulton, why don't you give us a little bit of a primer here? Who, who are Poulton and Marecki? So Poulton and Marecki, the first time I met Marecki was actually on my birthday in 2018. The uh, same day. Well, so Marecki came to visit you. Uh, Alex Marecki is a half Ukrainian, half American man, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and uh, he lives in Berlin now. He's a friend of Willie's. I'm not sure where you guys met. Uh, whatever. And yeah, we met in 2018. He came for my birthday. We went out for a wonderful dinner, ate some shrooms, went to a wonderful party where I ended up meeting my wonderful girlfriend, Vivian Varga, for the first time. Had it a wonderful night, and that was the start of our beautiful relationship. Thank you, Alex Marecki, for taking us on that journey. And uh, Matt Poulton, friend from yours, from New so York. Poulton, Poulton and I actually go way back. He was freshman year of high school when I was 14 years old. I made the varsity soccer team. Watch, after we give them this whole hype up, they're not even going to answer. But I made the varsity soccer team as a freshman just by some freak occurrence because the the captain, who was also a defender, his ACL was shredded to bits on the final day of the tryouts. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was so nervous that I was going to make junior varsity because there's three teams. There's freshmen for the scrubs. There's <laughs> JV, which is like pretty good if you're a freshman. It's usually like freshmen, <clears throat> really good freshmen, a few sophomores, and maybe like a few not so good juniors and seniors. Mm-hmm. But that's something to strive for. And then there's varsity, which I had no intentions of ever even being considered for. And then on the last day of the tryouts, a right back, which was my position, his ACL was torn. And I walked up into the bleachers and the coach told me you made the varsity team. And that was like a moment that sort of go Willie. Yeah, it it was though. Go Willie. A moment that like just changed my life forever because our team that year, we went to the state final for the first time ever. And one of our other captains was a guy named Matt Poulton. And he was the, the captain of our soccer team. And then I moved to England as a 24 year old to do my master's degree. And Poulton had been living in England for three years. He's a fashion designer sportswear fashion yes. design specifically yeah and we became 
again friends we were before but it was you know 18 years old 14 years old sort of like now we really became best friends and then the four of us together me exactly. and Marecki and Poulton all took a trip to Georgia and that's where we became the uh the group that I, I suppose the four elements today. the four elements so let's give them a call and see if they pick up here we go I've given them a little bit of prior warning but you never know are we group calling them or are we calling them one by one I'm just going to group call them on Facebook. I think that's probably the best way. That to sounds do. like the best way to do it. So yeah, just to, just to filibuster while Willie's sorting out the technical difficulties here. We went to Georgia together, which we mentioned on the first episode. And Georgia, as we mentioned in the first episode, is one of the best countries ever. It's a beautiful place. Winemaking originated there, which is very cool. And... We went there for a ski trip. We spent 10 days in Georgia, a couple days in Tbilisi, and then most of the time in Gudauri, which is where the biggest ski mountain in Georgia is. Georgia is between Russia and, I'm forgetting the name, but it's bordered by a mountain range. Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. The greater and lesser Caucasus border the northern and southern part of Georgia, and it makes Georgia be this crazy, crazy place because... In Siberia, in Russia, it's crazy cold, kind of like a desert. And in Azerbaijan, it's super hot and also kind of like a desert. But in Georgia, it's like this crazy mashup of wonderful weather with crazy snow on either border and then beautiful greenery and nice, like, balanced weather throughout the throughout the region and it's because of these two giant mountain ranges which help to i don't know do some meteoro meteorolo wow meteorological effects to the environment and it makes georgia the best country ever so i just discovered what the problem is i've run out of data i'm refilling data on my phone right now Uyuradenville. that's the that's what i text to verizon or not verizon to vodafone but now i have new data so just give me one second and we'll get the lads on the phone what were you saying about the meteorology it's just that the mountain ranges on the northern and southern border of georgia is why you'd think that azerbaijan i don't actually know much about azerbaijan maybe it's not a desert but siberia in russia which is definitely the northern <laughs> border of georgia is not a suitable place for having fun and just being generally enjoyable but georgia is crazy nice and it's because of the giant mountain range that helps to change. the caucasus what did I say? The greater and lesser Caucasus. The yeah. greater and lesser Caucasus. Yeah, yeah. The greater's on the north, lesser's on the south, and Georgia's in the middle. Georgia is an ancient, ancient society. I mean, it really, yeah. really goes back to the days of. In ancient Greece, they called it Kolkis. Kolkis. And that was where Jason and the Argonauts went. Oh. Jason and the Golden Fleece. For the Golden Fleece. And, and the search for the Golden Fleece. And they went over the Black Sea on a search for the Golden Fleece. Mm hmm. Which they say, because there's like gold in the rivers of the mountain ranges of Georgia. And the way that they would, I think, mine the gold out of the water was with like sheep, sheep fleece. And they would basically like drag it through the river. And I think that that was the origin of the story of Jason and the Argonauts. But don't quote me on that. I did try to, I, like I said, I'm an audible freak. And I tried to force the fellows to listen to Jason and the Argonauts. It's a short two-hour audible book. And when we were sitting in the hotel room before we went to sleep, I always turned on Jason and the Argonauts. I'm curious if they remember anything about this. And uh, what was your favorite part of the Georgia trip? The Tbilisi was a mind blowing experience. So Tbilisi was such a cool, almost like a precursor of Budapest to me because can I help by the way? Can I call them? 
Well, I just need to get like Wi-Fi on my phone. Well, oh, just let me let me hotspot you. Shit, sorry, should have done this earlier. There you go. I don't know why it's not working. There you go. Hot hot Wi-Fi. Hot hot Wi-Fi. Why is that the name of your Wi-Fi network? Oh, uh, because it's hot. It's hot. Everybody's out here trying to get the hot hot Wi-Fi, and the password is red red red. Anybody out there who's listening ever sees hot hot Wi-Fi on the list? The password is red red red. It's ergonomic when you're on the keyboard. Only left-handed, only three fingers, very fast, red, red, red. red. What, what do you mean by ergonomic? Oh, because oh, it's, it's the most comfortable. Left-handed. You can just do it with it's your left the, hand on the thumb. Oh. Letters are right next to each other. Is that important to you to have an ergonomic password? I mean, if you think about it, if you, you only need to use your left hand, it's, and it's, they're all right next to each other, it's very fast. Is it working? It's not working. Do you want me to call them? Yeah, but then you're not, you're not connected to the Rodecaster Pro. <laughs> Ray, can we link my phone to the Roadcaster Pro? Absolutely. Let's do it live. So, Tbilisi. So, Willie, I want you to riff a little bit about... Um, so, Tbilisi, I thought, was kind of like a precursor to Budapest in that it's... A precursor in the sense that you feel like it's Budapest 20 years ago? Yeah, Budapest did it 10 years ago because it's like came, they came out of the was like socialist, like communist regime... And they're sort of like building up their own kind of identity and their own kind of just like, you yeah, know, George is definitely a lot more raw than Budapest. I mean, they've had um, a more probably fractured history than Hungary, particularly because they've never joined the European Union and they have a much closer links with Russia. As you mentioned before, Joseph Stalin, he was actually from Georgia. And yeah. so he, he was a he was a Georgian a Georgian and, and Georgia was one of the most significant provinces in the former USSR. And actually they faced a lot of border wars um in the regions that border Russia because Russia you know, Georgia is is a great place and it, it has a lot of natural beauty. It has delicious, delicious feud and food in addition to feud. And one of the reasons like the the, the Black Sea resorts um of Georgia and the mountain lands, they're they're very something that the Russians really crave. So they fought a few wars over there that are continuing to this day. Um, and when you say that Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia was sort of Budapest 20 years ago, I don't know what Budapest was exactly like 20 years ago, but Tbilisi is incredible. One of the craziest things about Tbilisi is that when you walk down the streets there, you just see this like squiggle language, which is the Georgian script. The ancient Georgian language is just the most beautiful sort of like this crazy, crazy script. And they have a huge uh, culture of poetry and all, all the, all the, all the, who oh. is the main, the main poet oh. of Georgia? There's a, there's a poem called the nights in the leopard skin or the night in the panther skin. And it's all about a guy who went down to like India during, I believe the 13th or the 12th century. And he he went down and he won a panther skin in order to claim mm -hmm. his right as like the the new king because he wanted to to wed and bed the princess and he needed to get the panther skin. And if I've sold that sh story short, I'm, I apologize to all our friends in Georgia. We do have a couple of friends in Georgia who have started a wine bar, which we really need to go to. Why not Tbilisi? Why not Tbilisi? Right, the Tuninos. The Tuninos. Everybody in Georgia's name. Oh, right, amazing. Okay. So my, my phone also is not, like, it, there's no internet going on. Maybe the whole world is broken, and, and we've just been in the middle of We might of be in a podcast. tiny little silo of, uh, of the, the installation of the crypto anarchy. So we've had some significant 
technical difficulties. It, it appears that there has been some sort of cyber apocalypse and, and Facebook is uh, no longer working. And Tom and I are overly reliant on that as the main form of communication. But to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know any of my friends' numbers anymore since I just talked to them on Instagram and Facebook. Is that a bad thing? Is that something that I should rectify? I, personally, I despise that we only talk on Messenger because I turned all Messenger notifications off of my phone. So if you call me, I only hear the notifications coming on my iPad, which is like, you know, somewhere. So I'm the only one that you just talked to. The only one I talk to on Messenger. And you're also, it makes me, oh, well, whatever. That's not true. I talk to other people on Messenger. But the only one who I regularly talk to on Messenger. So that's potentially why there is zero people watching on the Facebook stream right now is because Facebook is down. Is that what we're working with? That Facebook is down? Facebook's down. That's why there's no watchers. But everybody who is here, you guys are strong. I shared it on mine. Okay, wait. I found. We have, we have, we have a possible. We have a possible linkage. I found. We're not, we're not giving up we're on not, this. We're not going to promise that it's going to happen. But after this try, I say we cut, we cut, we cut strings, and we shift to a. Another passage of Aldous Huxley. I mean, he, he will never let us down with his mescaline trip. So let me just. Uh... Wait, maybe I can just call Polton on the phone. I'm just going to call him on the phone. Okay. We're just call- we're going back to phone calling. Let's see. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is a real phone call here. Can't wait to hear what Polton has to say about Polton. Maddie Poltz. Uh, Hello. Hello. What's going on? How you doing? Hey, hey, I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys? You have no idea the (laughs) arduous journey that we just had to get you on the line. Jihad. It's 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 been it's been so What's up? I can't hear you that well. You, you guys sound really muffled. Oh, wait. Can you hear us better now? Yeah, yeah, that's a bit better. How you doing? Where you where you where you uh, where are you calling in from? I'm uh, I'm 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 in Liverpool at the moment. Liverpool, England, one of my favorite places in the entire world. What's the weather like? <laughs> uh, it's it's been gray and overcast today. The sun's Trying to fight through, but to no success. And what's going on? Are you with anyone? Yeah, I'm just chilling with Kaylee at the moment. I saw you. My were, girlfriend. You were posting some pictures from Thor's Rock before. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, we made a trip over to the world yesterday, and we found uh, Thor's Rock. Um, yeah, and... and uh, the you know did the Viking trail over there. There's a there's an old Viking settlement over there. Maddie, Pol- I mean, I, I know you're I know you're no stranger to the Vikings and the mythology of that era. What 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 took you on that journey in the first place? Was it the uh, old kingdom, New Kingdom books, or what is that called? Well, the Last Kingdom. Yeah, shit. Yeah, now that that definitely helped. That's funny. Kaylee asked me the same thing. Asked me like. What? How did I get hooked on this? And um, I, d- I don't know. I, I think uh, the Last Kingdom series definitely helped by Bernard Cornwell. And then um, 
the Vikings series, uh, and then just British history, just having a passion for that. Is Facebook working for you right now? What's that? Is Facebook working for you right now? Like when you go on Facebook, does it work? Um, I think so. Why wouldn't it? <laughs> we, 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 we thought we were in a silo of just like complete Facebook disaster. We were trying to get you and Marecki on the phone. And the reason that we wanted to talk to the two of you is because we were discussing Georgia and our trip there to the Caucasus. Oh. And uh, that, I mean, what, 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 are, what are your memories of that trip? Um, oh, just absolutely legendary. Mostly dogs and bathhouses. Dogs and bathhouses. What kind of dogs? <laughs> uh, it's it's a dog kingdom over there, man. The, all the characters that we came across, and like I can list a couple different dogs that we came across and just showed us a great time. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the cats? Ah, uh, it's a bit too dramatic. Didn't you guys touch on that one a couple episodes ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to retread over old ground. And what about the two Swiss gentlemen that we met? Mark Allen Buckley and I think his other name was Jonathan. Uh, two two very special guys. Fantastic snowboarders. And um, they they named us the Elemental Boys and, and assigned us each uh, an element. So Which, yeah, element, which, element, are you? which element are you? Uh, water, water, because it was kind of very chill and just going with the flow sort of guy. Whereas I am, I'm the complete antithesis to that. Is that what you would say? <laughs> yes. You have your moments of fire. So, um, yes, you're a bundle of energy. And, but, and w- but let's, let's not forget that water can be quite a dangerous thing. I mean, think about floods, tsunamis, water can cause some damage. And I believe you, you were in a baby tsunami mode. At one point when we were in Georgia, go, going crazy over some dumplings, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's, it's true. The power of water, when it gets going, it, it can definitely be uh, treacherous. But yeah, tore through those dumplings and dumpling juice turned into a river. Of <laughs> <laughs> That's why they call them Donnie Dumplings. <laughs> Donnie Dumplings, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it was epic you- over there. Can you give us a? Can you give us a highlight? The, not necessarily your favorite thing. Just the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about our trip to Georgia. Um, I I just I, I think like sort of random sense of adventure. You know, I know you were talking about it in one of the uh, earlier episodes about how we came across the decision to choose Georgia. I don't I don't quite know why, but I just think just going somewhere on the uh, off-beaten path and exploring new worlds and do you remember um, do you remember the day like a hidden world do you remember the speaking of hidden worlds do you remember the day that we went up to the uh that crazy statue i also just thought of the same thing i mean we basically hiked up to that crazy like former soviet silver statue that was like this giant like goddess to femininity or something like that it was that giant silver woman and then we walked down into that little uh valley of bathhouses and unlike in budapest where you have bathhouses sporadically placed around the city in georgia they were all clustered together in this sort of ancient uh shrine Mm. to bathing and we went to one in particular i think it was called the uh, gulas or something like that um and bas- yes. basically what they have is uh, a a a bathhouse 
where you get your own private room. And one second, Marecki, I got the other guy from Georgia on the line, but now we've got, oh boy. we've got all sorts of, <laughs> the, the elements are coming together. The elements are coming together. Beam, Facebook is working for me now. Could, could we maybe get uh, a Facebook call with uh, Polton and Marecki? Is that possible? I can't, but can you? I think that I can, but now we're talking about all sorts of technological uh, ins and outs and ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But either way, either way, we went down. What's that? What's that, Polton? Uh, you, you guys are recording a podcast right now. We're live. Oh wow! Oh, wait, what, what just, is the topic today? The topic has been we've we've gone through all sorts of rings and somersaults. We went to Elon Musk, crypto anarchy, the doors of perception by Aldous Huxley. Um, oh right! And now we're, we've been basically for the last like twenty minutes we've been trying to figure out how to get the Rodecaster Pro, which is our delightful little recording device here to link up to my phone and then to Bean's phone and then to get you and Marecki on the line because we wanted to do a group call. Um, but either, either well, way. I thought you would have figured that out by now. I know, I know, I know, I know, you know. <laughs> what can you do? But but the, the going back to Gula's bathhouse, we were we were sitting in there, and in Georgia, what's different about the bathhouses of Georgia from Budapest is that you get your own private like room, right? What, what was the what was the room like in Georgia that we had? Well, that first one, it was you know it felt like it was all built of stone, so it had this sort of grotto feel to it. Um, it was it was dark, but very very how do you say it? Um, it just it was, I don't know, dark and um, cave-like. <laughs> and then they had, I think they had like your own private room, which we did not utilize just for the record, but there's like a whole private room with like a bed and all these other things. And then we, we had the room with the, there was two warm baths and a cold bath and you basically bathed for a little while. And then yeah. these two burly Georgian men came in and offered us like scrub down <laughs> and we're all completely naked this entire time. I mean, that's an important visual to keep in mind that we are, we are utter, <laughs> utterly butt naked during this whole experience. And these two guys come in and they, they offer you scrubs and then you lay down on a marble bench and basically get like vigor- vigorously like scrubbed by a Georgian man for, I don't know, 20 minutes each. Absolutely. Yes. It was very revitalizing. It was incredible. But it, but it was, it was one of the best experiences you could ever have. It's really cool to be like vigorously rubbed down by another man. <laughs> <laughs> and then after, yeah, that's something to the skin. And then afterwards, what the, what the best part was, was that they, you went into the sauna and the guy, he, I remember he took out a big tub of water and he started splashing it all around the cedar walls of the sauna and made it super, super hot. And then brought in, what's the stuff that you drink in Georgia? It's like, it's sort of like Palenka in Budapest, but in... Oh. Cha-cha. Cha-cha. And Cha-cha was cha-cha. like this Georgian. What, what's it? What, Polton, you've had Palenka. You've had plenty of Palenka and you've had a little bit of Cha-cha. Which one do you like better? Yes. Oh, I've... I gotta say, cha cha hits the hardest, man. That that is a very very strong Absolutely. moonshine, if you will. Do you mind? Do you mind holding on for one second because I think that Bean can get Marecki on the line. He's, yeah. we're just gonna hang up with you and then do a group call on Facebook if that's all right. Uh, absolutely, let's do it. Let's let's get the, uh, let's get the, the ground earth. element in this earth. Let's get the earth in here. All right. All right, we're getting earth. Polton was water. Starting call in three, two, one, go. 
Tommy being his heir because he's so fucking tall. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the only reason for me to be heir. I'm fire because I was like, oh, the whole clan is here now. I'm in. You're in? Hello. hello. Oh, Ricky, right. what's going on? How you doing? Willie, you should not join this chat. All right, that makes a huge echo. I'm sorry. How's it going? I'm in full lockdown in Berlin, so I'm, I'm staying home and studying tonight. What, what are you, you up to? What are you studying? Uh, Karma Sutra. Karma Sutra? Karma Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm studying Deutsch, man. Studying Deutsch. Studying the German version of the Kama Sutra? I actually yeah, have a German version of the Kama Sutra. You actually, you actually have the German version. That's great. We, we were actually just in the middle because we were trying to finagle all sorts of technological difficulties here. Um, and finally, we got you in, but we were re- retelling the story of when we hiked up to that like Soviet statue of the woman and then went down to the bathhouse and then were vigorously scrubbed while naked by Georgian men and then got a sauna and then we had some cha-cha. Do you remember? Wait, wait, can I, can I say, um, you say we hiked up that mountain, but Dean raced a, uh, Georgian hung, um, rugby player up that one. I so thought we all raced up that. Oh no. Was it, was it Willie? Oh, no, Marecki versus Dean, wasn't it? Oh, we did race. That was super fun. We raced up these, these epic stairs with a giant, like 100 foot sculpture of a human at the top. I, I don't remember any of that. I, I do remember, uh, drinking the cha-cha after the, uh, after the bathhouse. Mareki, do you like cha-cha or palenka better? Do you, do you have recollections of either? Yeah, yeah, I like palenka better. Oh, let's go. <laughs> well, Fulton said cha-cha. He is, said, this, is, this, is this contentious? It, it's not necessarily contentious. I mean, I think that Palenka is certainly the winner, but Poulton has brought in all sorts of contention into the argument. Well, well, well I, will say, I, I, I said cha-cha hits harder. Yeah, <laughs> let's be and honest. Then, let's be easy. Well, when someone asks you a question, what's better, and you say with a big grin on your face that cha-cha hits harder, how are we supposed to take that? <laughs> well, yeah, no, it, it brings a certain spirit out. That's that's for sure. But don't get me wrong. I do love Palenka. I do love the flavors of Palenka, so I'll drink that any day. Although I will say the first cha-cha experience that I remember in Georgia was inside of a giant inflatable igloo at the top of a ski mountain with a bunch of... I know, believe that igloo was called, what, the, the White Rabbit? The White Rabbit. Oh my gosh, what a place. And that was in Gudauri, which is the, the ski resort about, what, an hour and a half north of Tbilisi. And we washed up there completely, absolutely, like, at the end of our rope in terms of hangover i think maybe just me but we got there and uh the 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 white rabbit was this like ski igloo refuge in the middle of this mountain and in georgia the mountains they don't have any trees which is kind of bizarre coming from an american maybe alpine european perspective you just have this bare naked uh mountain of just like snow and then there was the white rabbit which was this igloo yurt thing and we had plenty of cha-cha there do you guys remember anybody that we met during that trip that was interesting? The Swiss. The two Swiss fellows that were traveling Iran after. Remember those guys? Mark Allen Buckley and Jonathan. Yeah, they some characters. Some characters. I was, I was going to say as well, there's only one way to get over a hangover. What's that? Drink again. That's drink right. Again. That's right. The hair <laughs> Go to the white rabbit and drink a bunch of cha-cha. The hair of the dog. The hair of the Fresh dog. mountain air. Do you want to know, actually, speaking of the two Swiss guys... I, I have a Instagram voice note from Mark 
uh, we've stayed in sporadic touch, but randomly the other day, Bean and I were driving and I said, well, I have a a voice note that I haven't listened to from Mark. And so we played it. And basically to sum up what he said was like, oh, I'm sorry that we haven't talked in so long. Uh, The coronavirus, you know, it's not so good. And this was his plan for the summer. He was, (laughs) he was basically going to take a boat he said, he said, I'm going to take my boat, his boat, his boat. So apparently he has a boat. And what was he going to do? I don't know. He said he was going to just go down the Mediterranean, and- go down the Mediterranean, circle around and then come back like through the Balkans up through Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, and then sail back across to Italy. It just sounded like a fantastic wow. plan. And he, 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 Those two were something else. Wait, did they, did they even make it to Japan? Cause when we met them, they were journeying from Switzerland to no, Japan so, so, originally on bike at first, but then one of them hurt their knee and they had to resort, resort to walking or. Well, well that's what was, <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan, who was like the taller, lankier one. They were both professional Swiss snowboarders of some sort that were planning to bike to Japan from Switzerland, as he mentioned. And Jonathan, he hurt his knee and he had all sorts of knee problems. And he also fell in love with a Georgian girl. Yeah, and we were uh, there for uh, the disband, hard not but as, as hard not <laughs> hard to not. exactly. But as as far as I know, as far as I know, he has like been there ever since. I don't know if he's ever left because Mark said something. Wow. Mark said something to me in French that was apparently like the the translation was like, "You are this thing, and that's like only what you can be because it's glued to your persona." And he was suggesting that Jonathan was always going to meet that Georgian woman and just stay there. So there you have it. We were there for that. We, we were actually there for the night when this, I remember the conversation. They were like, yeah, our journey's over. That Jonathan was like, I'm in love with this girl. I'm never going to leave. Actually, oh, wow. w- w- another thing that I wanted to ask you guys is, is Elon Musk someone that you would aspire to be? Is that like an aspirational figure for you? When he becomes Iron Man, when he fully transitions. <laughs> so that that's the elon musk version of transitioning is just becoming an, an iron iron man yeah it's the fourth gender <laughs> i thought there was like 73 but i don't want to be too politically incorrect here i don't know yeah no 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 that's i mean if the iron man is the fourth that's good but we're but, just on facebook lies you guys can check it out either either way is is iron is, is iron man slash elon musk someone that you would is he an aspirational figure for me, uh, I, I don't think I would aspire to be him, but I, I highly admire what he's accomplished and uh, would would like to um, partake in what he he done. So, he getting the Neuralink? He getting hooked up? We talked about Neural- <laughs> we talked about Neuralink before, which I still don't really understand. What what, what, what is it? Is it like the Matrix? It, it essentially, makes your brain into a processor, doesn't it? It turns your brain into a processor. No, like a, a computer processor. Like you can, um, you can uh, store and like uh, take in and out data uh, like a computer yeah. much faster than like, and we can retain information that. Way. Yeah, right like now you process. can you can only input and output data between a computer and the brain by like typing on a keyboard and looking at a screen, and this like bypasses wow. this bypasses like the sensations of sight, touch, and all this stuff. And it just bypasses it, puts it direct, put in, puts nodes directly into your brain, so that you can communicate with thoughts, and computer computers can talk back to you with thoughts, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. Plug me in. Plug me in. <laughs> it is it is the Matrix. Just like a really that sounds like it. I don't know though. I I, I kind of feel like uh, I want to become 
more detached rather than more attached to technology and speed. I think it, it's very hard to conceptualize right now. Like it's, it's, it's so far away from being a consumer product. Well, that's also something that's like, it's coercive in a way because like inevitably if that comes out, you're not going to be the one guy that says like, Oh, I'm not going to use the neural link because then you're just going to be like a potato living in the stone age. Yeah. You become pretty unemployable. Everyone else is hooked up. <laughs> Everyone else you're, hooked up. you're reading a book. <laughs> unemployable on un, uh unmateable you're just gonna be like living well i don't know maybe we, may, maybe right now there is like separatist colonies that exist that are completely detached from the technological infrastructure and they have their own sort of economic uh structures that we don't know about and uh, i don't know yeah there's one in the north of spain i met this this this, this girl from barcelona on the street yesterday she was telling me about it uh her friend started like this colony in the north of spain where they all you know together grow their grow their own produce if a new person comes they all come together and build a house with that person um and they don't use internet so you met someone on the street in berlin that that lives <laughs> she, she lives there or she she knows of it and that's so berlin that is Claudia, so no, berlin so she's my berlin. neighbor she's on the street <laughs> She's your neighbor. Well, Marecki, you're just walking around. How how did you meet this woman? Can you tell us how you initiated the conversation? Is this a live podcast? I can just say it anyway. Um, (laughs) I was biking home. uh, I had a big plant with me because I was picking up a plant. uh, And then I saw this, like, cute girl in a blue jacket. uh, She stopped me. And I was, like, on my street. And I'm like, hello? She spoke to me in English, which was a little bit bizarre. She asked me uh, where I could find wheat, where she could find wheat. She's trying to smoke a joint. Um, and I told her, uh, boy, I don't have any weed on me right now. Um, and then she wanted, she asked if I can get her weed. And I thought, ah, this is a bit sketchy. She's off the street. Uh, she might try to rob me. Uh, I'm like, I'm like do, you, do you live here? Do you live around here? Uh, and she's like, yeah, I live around the corner. So anyway, I said, uh, good luck. Ciao. Uh, and I went to my flat and I came down 20 minutes later to, to, to go to like the, the corner store and she was still there. And at this point, uh, we struck up a conversation and then we uh, went to my flat and we smoked some hash um, and I were friends. Because on the second go, uh, I trusted her a bit more because I knew she was in the area. On the first go, uh, I was a bit, uh, a bit conspicuous for me. You're very cerebral. Anyway, name's Claudia. She's in Barcelona. She's a contemporary dancer. Wow. Very cool. So Berlin. And so this this colony in the north of Spain is just like off the grid pretty much, and they just sort of exist and grow things for themselves and live in like a blissful, utopic, parallel universe? I don't know how blissfully utopic it is, but I think some of those things <laughs> are better true. <laughs> that's what you always have to wonder is like, how, how good is that actually going to be? Are the people really just cranky and at each other's throats all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a mix of both. A mix sure. of both, just like anything else. We can't escape. We're just we're we're in what we're in, and that's sort of the theme of this podcast has been uh, the philosophy of stoicism. Do you guys know anything about Stoic philosophy? Yeah, Marcus Aurelius meditations. Bro. Exactly. You know that he wrote them, or some of them at least, on the banks of the Danube in the Aquincum colony, which was ancient Budapest. Ah, uh, didn't know that. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. I mean, imagine that Marcus Aurelius, but I, I don't know too much about the Stoic meditations other than he wrote them in Budapest. What, what, what? I don't know them that well. I cannot be informed by them, but uh, Marecki, you sound like, you know, a bit about it. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially a philosophy where you try to better yourself, uh, in the pursuit uh, of knowledge, knowledge is like the highest virtue, right? Mm. Oh, I love that. 
that's, that's a bit like Odin from Norse mythology. Always, always trying to gather more knowledge, sacrificing his eye for knowledge. Is yeah. that why Odin has one eye? I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 He gave it up. Gave it, gave it up to the tree, right? For, for knowledge. Oh, you yeah. give up for some knowledge. Sweet, sweet knowledge. Mm. Oh, you give up. <laughs> one of my balls. Question. I'm going to say the left one. <laughs> uh, no, the left one's too precious. <laughs> which which one hangs lower for you? you uh, well, you know, it's 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 sort of a given that it's the left one now, but uh, <laughs> the the idea of of Odin and North Myth- Norse mythology is something that has been very intrinsic, I would say, to our relationship, Polton, because you sort of bequeathed this idea of being like rapidly obsessed with Vikings onto me, <laughs> and have led led me towards the the descent that I've been on ever since. <laughs> The spring of 2017. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I might have played a part in that. Yeah. Depending on how you look at it, it could be in essence, but either way, I'm going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. What I will say about, I think that the, yeah, it is, I think stoicism is a pursuit of knowledge, but when Odin gave up his eye, it was kind of to pursue knowledge in the tangible sense, like knowing everything, knowing what everybody's doing and all that stuff. And stoicism isn't really about pursuing tangible knowledge, but it's like using your power, the power of your brain to challenge your understanding every step of the way. So not necessarily like gaining more knowledge, but whenever something happens to you, actively using your ability to to like your brain and your ability to think to change your perception of that thing that happened or to influence your perception so it's essentially becoming um like a well-rounded skeptic on your way through life yeah Mm. i think that's a good way to put it actually you know what book speaking of perception that i have in front of me which we've read a few passages of tonight is the doors of perception by aldous huxley murky you've read that haven't you I have read that. It's actually on my bookshelf. I'm, uh, I'm rereading it because another friend of mine who, who runs another podcast in Amsterdam wants to talk about that in her podcast. <laughs> oh, wow. Who, what's this podcast about? It's called Mind Ocean Podcast. <laughs> the Mind Ocean she, Podcast? Yeah, she, she, she essentially like interviews creatives, which technically I'm not one, um, and talks about like different... Um, I don't know, different ambitions, different ways of life, different uh, perceptions of, you know, this journey that people have. Um, anyway, this, this book, I recommended this book to her, and she was really taken by it. So that's cool. why she wants to really? invite me on it. Oh, my God. Whiskey Barlangyanos has just messaged into the, the live stream on Facebook. Do you guys know about Whiskey Barlangyanos? He was... I, a- I know you, you, I mean, done a uh, podcast with him and a walking with Willie episode that I'm, I'm super excited to catch up with. He sounds, he seems like quite the character. He, he's an electric guy. He's, uh, basically brought a new enthusiasm for bourbon and Tennessee whiskey. And did you know that there was a difference between bourbon and Tennessee whiskey? I assume there was one actually. <laughs> you assume there was. <laughs> I had no idea. He brought a new appreciation for like Jack Daniels and like just Tennessee whiskey in general and just like how influential that whole world oh, can be. Oh, so this okay, so this is a passage from Aldous Huxley that describes like the scientific biological process of mescaline on the body. Do you mind if I just uh, read this for one second? Here we go. <laughs> whether or not here we go. Yeah, whether, go ahead. Whether, whether or not you've given me consent this is the the viewers out there know what mescaline is 
I don't know because I don't think that Tom and I, 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 I described it as like a, a cactus derivative that's used in like native indigenous religious ceremonies in the Southwest of America. It's a, it's and a psychoactive drug as far as I understand. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, nope. I think that's, that's pretty accurate. I know there's like five different main types of psychoactive drugs. Uh, this is one of them. So, so is this it is like one. an ayahuasca? Ayahuasca is another, uh, uh, psilocybin is another, um, Psilos- I don't know, uh, psilocybin being like shrooms. So we have psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, mescaline, and then we're peyote maybe. What DMT is it? All right. Either way, this is what mescaline does to you. The brain is provided with a number of enzyme systems which serve to coordinate its workings. Some of these enzymes regulate the supply of glucose to the brain cells. Mescaline inhibits the production of these enzymes and thus lowers the amount of glucose available to an organ that is in constant need of sugar. When mescaline reduces the brain's normal ration of sugar, what happens? Too few cases have been observed, and therefore a comprehensive answer cannot yet be given. But what happens to the majority of the few who have taken mescaline under supervision can be summarized as follows. And there's three, there's actually four descriptions here. I'm just going to read the first line from each. The the ability to remember and to think straight is little, if at all, reduced. So it doesn't really impair your memory or your thinking straight. But visual impressions are greatly intensified, and the eye recovers some of the perceptual innocence of childhood. That sounds cool. Number three, though the intellect remains unimpaired, and though perception is enormously improved, the will, your will, so I think that's sort of related to your ego, suffers a profound change for the worse. The masculine taker sees no reason for doing anything in particular, and finds most of the causes for which, at ordinary times, he was prepared to act and suffer profoundly uninteresting and finally number four these better things may be experienced as i experience them thank you aldous out there or in here or in both worlds the inner and the outer simultaneously or successively that they are better seems to be self-evident to all masculine takers who come to the drug with a sound deliver and an untroubled mind Interesting. Whoa. So, I mean, the thing that stuck out to me the most there was the idea that it takes your mind back to a state of visual childhood. No. Yeah. I, I think like feeding off of that, that's, that's essentially we, we see with more clarity. So I think as, as people go through, through this life, um, like the clarity we have is a bit diluted by, you know, society, the capitalist structures around us, et cetera, that where we, we don't see quite as clearly the reality of the world. And, and mescaline gives you a chance to, to reclaim that. That's cool. That's, that's very cool, yeah, because our, our, our active uh, filtration of everything that comes to us is very much dictated by how we've been changed or conditioned by, like you said, like the societal structures that we live within. And that sounds fun to drop some of that. This is the, the sounds like we can use a bit of it. This we is the, could all use a bit of it. This is the third passage that I've read from the book thus far, and the, <laughs> or the fourth, and three of the four have been from pages twelve and thirteen, and I've, <laughs> I've opened randomly every time. Oh man, I don't know what that says about me. I think I need some more mescaline to unlock my. I think Aldous Huxley has a has a tremendous ability to to explain what 
almost unexplainable. Like he, I don't know, his his pros, like he's very detailed in his explanations in a way that, I don't know, I think the, the average experience couldn't be communicated. But he communicates it really well. Right. It's a very he, dense book, isn't he, it? Like, but he, but he, does, he does it also un, unpretentiously in the sense... I mean, it, it has to be like a little bit pretentious if he's writing a whole novella about a masculine experience. But at the same time, he is able to just like bring in such a, a, a genuine um, universal experience that everyone can relate to. And he also he, he references a lot of stuff like I just flipped open here and he's talking about Zen Buddhism and Taoism and Christianity. And he's talking about things that we can like actually relate to um, given our own lived experiences. You don't have to just talk about a drug trip as being this sort of like trippy dippy visual experience. There's a, there's a lot of concerned thinking and uh, insight in here. So I think it's pretty cool about this idea of meditation and kind of like stoic meditation. I think that, that's what we started this whole kind of conversation with stoicism about it and how it's so similar to what is often called meditation today, which is active breathing and actively thinking about what your mind is doing. And in a way this mescaline, is forcing you to change your perception and change the way you think about what you're perceiving. Same thing, stoicism is challenging how you think about what you're perceiving. And Marek, you just talked about how like Huxley's able to describe this thing. What, like, how do you, why is he able to do that? Are you, I don't know. I mean, how does, how would what I said just make you feel? Ah, I mean, topics I, I, I really enjoy. Um, I mean, as, as an active uh, meditator and an active, I guess, seeker uh, of, of, of the real experience uh, in life outside of, you know, what we're conditioned uh, to believe. Um, I, I think that Huxley, um, I mean, one, he has a fantastic grasp of the English language. Um, so it's, it's just very enjoyable and fluid uh, when he writes. He reminds me of almost uh, an Alan Watts. Uh, and I think Alan Watts can translate uh, Eastern thoughts to Western um the Western uh, prose in a way that no one's done before. And now this talk to you reminds me of him uh, because in all the books I've read of his, um, he, he essentially paints like a very intellectual uh, and profound image uh, of a very, uh, of a very, like I, I want to say simple to be honest, because the, because the experience of Mesopotamia, I feel like it's more, it's more, it's more sensation than, than logic. And he brings that sensation into our logical mind mm-hmm. and has the words to, to convey that. It's fascinating. Nice. I love that. Shout out to uh, The Island by Alvin Huxley. Fantastic book. Yeah, you guys haven't read it. There's also... I think it was his last before he died. When he, uh, he brings a lot of his ideas on the paper. It's good. Well, well Huxley, Huxley's Brave New World, that's sort of his uh, magnum opus. And that paints another type of dystopia to George Orwell in 1984. But they're, they're often seen in tandem to one another, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think is 1984 like a little bit more of like a negative dystopic image. I mean, Brave New World is also a dystopia, but a different type of dystopia. No, 1984 is, is a super authoritarian, right? It's where the where the state overall uh, prevails, and I think Brave New World is a bit more like from the libertarian aspect, where mm-hmm. the the personal will has an opportunity to expand. Uh, but there's yeah, yeah, but they, they are in contrast a bit, aren't they? They usually are coupled, at least in my experience. I don't. I don't think I've ever read the complete version of either of them, so I, I might be a little bit Thank ignorant here. Because as there's the Netflix show coming out, and we can finally like experience the whole book. 
If we had Neuralink, we could just download it right now. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> and then, uh, just to, there's just going to be so many musicians when, when Neuralink comes out. There's going to be so many musicians. There's not enough already. <laughs> there's going to be more, man. More. <laughs> Polton, you're kind of a musician, aren't you? <laughs> In what way? <laughs> I don't know because you're a fashion designer. It's like it's kind of the same thing. Music with a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sportswear designer. A fabric, a oh, fabric musician. Oh come on, you're a fashion designer. There's a, there's, there's a big difference. Well, I I think it's up to me. And whenever someone asks me about you, which is almost every day, I say that yeah, he's my friend. He's a fashion designer uh, in London. No, it's so embarrassing. Meanwhile, <laughs> you're doing sportswear up in Liverpool. Polton, do you feel yourself I'm, dropping into the flow state during your work in in the f- fashion world? And if I can ask a second yeah. question, in what kind of work do you find yourself dropping there? Um. Sorry, I don't understand your second question. Into the into the flow state, like what 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 like deep work. What what causes the flow state or this idea of deep work, zoning out, feeling in the complete flow of things? Um, I'm not sure what causes it. I think it it takes some practice getting into it, and it's not something you can just jump right into. But um, yeah, the longer you stick with something, like. For example, if I'm designing a print that's going to go onto a football tee, uh, it's, it's hard at first. Um, but the longer you play with it, you know, you start to enter this creative um, zone and um, get deeper into it. And you start to feel the, the creative flow, I guess if you would say. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me as a sportswear designer, there's a couple different modes I have to go into. Um, if it's sort of like a tech packing stage, I go into a more robotic um, zone where, you know, the work is a bit more um, repetitive and stuff. But if I'm more in a creative area, uh, it's definitely using a different part of the brain. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I, I use different, um, how do you say it? Like I'll, I'll listen to music uh, when I'm creating prints um, or designing but if I'm doing more tech pack work, I'll listen to podcasts to sort of entertain my brain. I always thought that was interesting, like what parts of the brain we're using at the same time. And would you say that the amount of fatigue that you experience after each of these focus sessions is different? Would you say that you're more fatigued after one kind of work? Yeah, that's really interesting that you, you asked that because I find myself like, I think the creative stuff is actually mentally a lot more, it, it takes a lot more um, fuel. You know, I'm, I'm quite tired and knackered after it versus mm-hmm. something like a tech pack, which is you know, pretty basic work. So, yes, yeah, so it's definitely like uh, using mental energy. Uh, it requires a lot, I think, the creative uh-huh. stuff. All right, as we, as we uh, only have like a few more minutes here before the Budapest... 8 p.m. curfew is enacted. Oh, um, no. do, do you do you guys remember the word Bassiani? Does that mean anything to you, Bassiani? <laughs> yeah, oh, the boom boom, the boom boom. <laughs> what what the do you dark think? Boom boom. What do you think of when I say Bassiani? Everybody gets uh, a phrase. Football club. <laughs> I think of a, uh, I guess some some really trendy young folks. Marecki, I remember, in that flow state. 
I remember you after like eight days of just heinous activity, just relentlessly trying to get us to go there and nobody really wanted to. Um, but you're like, we got to go Bassiani, Bassiani. And I thought it was just going to be like a normal nightclub in Georgia and Tbilisi. And we, <laughs> we get to, I'm going to read the Wikipedia description right here. Bassiani in Georgian. It's like, three squiggles and a curly line is a nightclub in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia founded in 2014 is located in the building of the city's largest sports venue, the Dinamo arena and utilizes a disused swimming pool as the main dance floor. It is the largest dance club in Georgia and can accommodate around 1,200 people. But that doesn't really sum it up because it was like, a crazy, 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 just post-Soviet unique experience. And I think we were all pretty thankful that Marecki made us go there at the end of the day. I don't know about that you. That was like house, man. You, you hear the kids talking about it. You got to check it out. It was amazing. You keep your ear to the, uh, grindstone. the grindstone. Every day. So I wake up. Uh, you always need that sort of person in the group that's going to rile up the boys, get them to go out, hit Bastiani last night. Oh, thank that's, you, Marecki. That's why he's Earth. He's close to the ground. He hears the hubbub. He's got everything. He uh, makes sure. He makes sure we're with the beat of the Earth, with with the tune of the of the planet. And last question before we leave. Vibration. Last question before we leave. Uh, each of you get an answer. Where's the next trip going to be? Yes. I was just thinking about this a few minutes ago, and Albania popped up in my mind. Ooh. Is that because you got your haplogene diagnosed and you're like a 128th Albanian? <laughs> uh, a little bit, no. But I, I was thinking about the characters that we met up in the, uh, the White Rabbit. And I remember one of the guys, all sort of expat travelers. And um, we brought up Albania and he said it was just such a beautiful place. And I, I could picture going there. I'm definitely down. That or, or I know we spoke about Ukraine and Mareki's homeland. Well, Marecki, is that what you were going to say? No, but that's always on the cards. Uh, the Be- cards should fall that way. Being a Yuki, what, what, uh, wh- wh- where, where would you say? Do you have, do you have a suggestion? I was actually going to recommend the Balkans, uh, and I think Albania is in the Balkans, isn't it? I think a pan Balkan trip would be fantastic, uh, which also yeah. tethers into one of the previous guests that we had on, which was two uh, Hungarian girls that are documentary filmmakers and are currently producing a documentary about the Balkans. So. Anyway, it's in the cards. Albania, Balkans, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which I think is now called North Macedonia. There's a bunch of countries out there, and I think they're all beautiful, cheap, and ready for... uh, Macedonia. Macedonia would be interesting. You you don't really hear people going to Macedonia for vacation. No, you don't. Well, thank you, lads. I really appreciate your patience uh, in getting this call. Actually, you exhibited no patience because you didn't even know we were calling you, but... Thank you for joining in when you did. This was a enlightening uh, discussion, and I hope that we can talk again in person. Perhaps flying you out here for another episode in the future. So, absolutely, shot, no, it was, it was great. It's always a pleasure uh, lobbing the ball into each other's court. Oh, nothing better. Much love, fellas. Much love and gratitude. All right, Marecki. Good luck in that Spanish colony up in the north. <laughs> Stay in touch. Well, spectacular. You know, it was worth the wait in the end. Absolutely.
I think we have to do that now, basically, at least once every other week. That was spectacular. Great guests. Well, Tom, I don't know if you want to do uh, one more cheers with our... Uh, sure, why not? Let's... Gemmens whiskey. Let's make it a proper ending. This was really a spectacular episode. I, I, that's the third time I've said it in the last two minutes. I feel bad for <laughs> repeating that word so many times. But No, you know, we're, we're, we're our own best propagandists. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's all that you can really ask for. Oh, all right. Ray's getting in here. What I wanted to say is that uh, I like the idea of this whole thing being primarily for ourselves and therefore like in, in product of that being for whoever's listening. And for me, this episode was very great for myself. Really great to have this conversation and learn from you, learn from this conversation, learn from our good friends and build a foundation for what I want to do in the times to come. And Aldous Huxley. I mean, maybe, maybe next time we all talk, we have to take some mescaline before who knows. That's a foundation to me. Cheers. Egeshegatekra. Nice. Very good. Hungary does not only do palenka, they also do whiskey. Single barrel. Pretty well. Gemens. Gemens, I think I think that's a place in Hungary, so we should probably go there. Um anyway, thank you very much everyone. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you listening. And we will be back very soon. We have a couple of very, very, very exciting episodes lined up in the next two weeks. The founder of Flex Gym in Budapest and Eddie and Maria, a.k.a. Emma Lovett, two of the most famous webcam models in the entire world. So we will see you back here at some point in the future. Kusunum Seipen, Kusunyuk Seipen, Yoe Sakat, Yo Regelt, Yo De Luten. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. That was another episode of Talking with Willie. Love you all. Thank you very much. Bye.